everybody. I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. And we are here with episode 91 of Fried Squirms. I guess first things first, as a horror podcast, we are loath to not put out a show <laughs> in October, but shit happens. So sorry about last week. Yeah, we had an episode planned, unfortunately didn't go through. So we decided to give ourselves a week break and kind of recharge the batteries so we could come in full force on this episode. A recharge was probably a good idea, though, to be honest, because like last episode, I felt really low energy. Mentioned that yeah, I felt you were like I was getting weather. sick. I, in fact, ended up being out of work the next two days, and I'm only within like the last two days feeling back in like almost 100%. So yeah, so you'll have a lot more energy for this episode, and like so it's just a good way to take a nice little break. Yeah, just. Sucks that it had to come in October, but yeah, that was okay. the breaks. So I mean, it happens, you know, but it doesn't mean that we have not done our homework in the meantime. So I guess a good way we can kind of catch everybody up to date is to let them know what we've been up to lately. Yeah, well, I haven't been up to much, honestly. Well, uh, yeah, you kind of mentioned you were sick for some of that time. Well, I had the chance to go see a local show here in town, and a, a Japanese band came through, Kikugaku Moyo. So if you're familiar with maybe some psychedelic Japanese music, I'd say if not, check them out. But man, that was such a good show. I got to meet them afterward, got their vinyl, got it signed, so I was pretty excited about that. And then last night, I got to check out a film that we've been talking about for a while, someone called uh, us you, out on. Did you finally fucking watch it? I did, oh, dude. thank God. Okay, because that is the big thing that I did in the past couple of weeks. Finally watch Mandy. Yeah, so that's the film we're alluding to. Mandy's phew, it's awesome. Let's table Mandy for yeah. a second. And at the very end of this episode of us talking about Suspiria, we'll talk for a little bit on Mandy. That sounds good. But so we both I, I kind of want to have like the freedom to like slip up. So if you don't want to hear us like spoil parts of Mandy, then you don't have to tune in. But that'll be at the very end of the episode. Yeah, so we'll table it like you said. It might as well be its own little mini episode. I'm going to have, I have a feeling that that's what's going to end up happening. Nice. Well, aside from that, taking in that film, I did receive a package in the mail on a film that I'm actually getting a special thanks on the database for, which is really cool. But Scott Shermer's new film, The Bad Man, has been released to those that helped with the Kickstarter fundraiser. So I got a pretty cool little care package, man. It's got some nice. pretty cool shit. Got some, uh, Cards of the actors and their character signed. It's got some information pertaining to the film itself, like a really cool badge. Oh, shit, yeah. Yeah, I got a, a bumper sticker and two golden condoms. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, Batman insignia, which is kind of weird, but... Uh, well, you'll have to let me know when you check it out. Yeah, since we uh, sure will. We've definitely dug Shermer-related work. Yeah, we've past, done Found so. and Headless as well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about watching that. But yeah, outside of that, man, just kind of low-key for the most part. Yeah, same here. A lot of playing video games. Oh yeah, a lot of watching Netflix and shit. All my fucking nerdy shows are coming back, so like, I feel like I have no fucking time anymore. Yeah, dude, we've got some really cool shit as far as shows coming up to kind of binge, which is going to be fun. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I've started seeing the earlier reviews for Sabrina have started coming out. Yeah, dude. Press has gotten to see the first eight episodes, oh, I believe, of ten. 
I've heard it's really saintly. We love uh, Satan. I've heard it's toned down a little bit from the comics because the comics get pretty gruesome. <laughs> the reviews I've seen have been mostly positive, and I'm going to watch it anyway. Like Likewise. they have my money, so to speak. I mean, it's Netflix, so they definitely have my money. It's not like I'm not already fucking paying for it. But <laughs> the reviews have been mostly positive. I've heard a couple like not really bad things, but things here or there, like. It might still be trying to ride the Riverdale vibe a little bit too yeah, much. Yeah, always from the same creators, than, right? Yeah, so rather than go. going full tilt into like how dark the comics get, and because wow. they sort of allude to it at points, I guess it does get pretty fucking gruesome. So I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm okay with it. I can't wait to see it and check it out with my own own two eyes. So yeah, well, that's you know coming out, and we talked about Castlevania. Their same season day. two, yeah, which is gonna be fucking dope. So we've seen the trailer; it looks pretty good. We'll just have to wait and see what happens, but I'm excited about those. It's Halloween. Yeah, Halloween this weekend. Yeah, which we're going to figure out when we're going. Dude, yeah, that's going to be fun. I'm looking go, forward to that. Go hand in hand, skipping into it. Fucking hell. <laughs> <laughs> you got that right. So yeah, we'll have some fun stuff to talk about with that. Yeah, just a fun month overall. I mean, it's almost Halloween, so what is there not to like about this time of year? That's right. Shit, that's all I really have for my side of the plate. Yeah, I mean, as far as personal stuff, I guess I can kind of segue into some of the rumblings in the horror world as far as movies and shows and all that good stuff. But I did see that David Arquette, he's returning to horror in a film called High Voltage, and it's also starring Luke Wilson. So I was like, ah, oh, looks pretty interesting. Ooh. Apparently it's getting an October 19th release, so we'll see what happens. It's going to be in most major cities, New York, Chicago, Boston, etc. So if you're in those major metropolitan areas, check it out, man. So another thing I saw, kind of John Carpenter related in Halloween, not necessarily Halloween related, but John Carpenter more so, is that Jeff Bridges says he wants to reunite with Karen Allen for a sequel to John Carpenter's Starman. Ooh. I'm a huge fan of that film. I grew nice. up watching that in the 80s. Love it. It's not horror by any stretch. It's uh, more of a sci-fi. sci-fi. Yeah, drama. It's really good, man. It's kind of bittersweet. So another thing I had seen was that Lionsgate, they're giving The Evil Dead Part 2 the 4K Blu-ray treatment with some new featurettes. Now, I want to add on to that. It's not about Evil Dead 2, but it's a related release that I want to talk about just to sort of... This is my own theory. I just want to stoke the rumor mill a little bit, but yeah. something I noticed. Another thing that's getting a... Ooh, I can't remember if it's a 4K release or a Blu-ray release. I think it's a Blu-ray. The Evil Dead remake... Oh, yeah. yeah. ...is getting a unrated release for the first time. Uh, be it's awesome. been unrated on Video On Demand before, though I think that might have been for a limited time. However, like I said, I wanted to stoke the rumor mills a little bit. Earlier this year... Ash vs. Evil Dead got canceled. Since then, Bruce Campbell himself has been very vocal about different ways that the franchise could continue with all the characters that were started in Ash vs. Evil Dead and also bringing up Mia from the remake. And then Fede Alvarez, I mean, always puts up fucking... We talked about it when he put up the poll and shit. And he's right. like, During what World film Cup do you want to see? Like, He's like, okay, he knows fans want Evil Dead, his Evil Dead too. One of the things that the unrated cut does is it adds a scene in the end that makes it absolutely clear that Mia gets away. Hmm. Are they doing the unrated release to sort of keep fanning Spearhead. the... Yeah. I mean, I hope so. You never know. Keep making it clear that this could go on and sort of maybe they're setting up for... Yeah, the film is not that old, man, and it's no. already had several different cuts and releases. 
depending on where you picked it up from. So, I mean, it's not a bad rumor to start, you know, right. or at least that's a very well-educated opinion. Yeah. Uh, I'd like to think that maybe they're, uh, they're sort of hinting at something. I'm okay. I mean, we're huge or setting fans. that, uh, you know, setting that up. Yeah, making sure yeah. that uh, making sure that it's out there that like <laughs> First by the report. way Mia gets away. That's really awesome. So yeah, man, that's gonna be fun to see that. And I've been meaning to get a copy of Evil Dead too. So for those who don't have one and do want the 4K Ultra HD combo pack, it does release do. yeah December. So it's gonna be December 11th, 2018. I think I might do it. So fucking badass. So what they're also doing with that release is that for the first time, it's going to include a never-before-seen 52-minute featurette entitled Bloody and Groovy, Baby. Hmm. So it's a tribute to Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2 featurette. So, yeah. So for those who are looking to either double-dip, triple-dip, or just get a copy of it, man, this will be a good one. Yeah, just dip, baby, dip. (laughs) Yeah, that's going to be fun. When I dip, you dip, we dip. We dip. I'm okay with (laughs) double-dipping. All right, so we've talked about this person several times, but Air Bradolf Pittler, Brad Pitt, he starred in a slasher called Cutting Class back in the 80s, but it's receiving a 4K restoration for Vinegar Syndrome, it's Blu-ray. So it's one I grew up, once again, had cable in the late 80s, saw it several times late at night. I never have. It's not bad, dude. I mean, it's not great, but it's pretty decent. I don't think I knew of its existence. It might be a good one to visit. (laughs) So this was a film that he starred in in 1989. Like I said, it's uh, getting its 30th anniversary Blu-ray debut on Black Friday. So for those who are fans or have never seen it before, check it out. Now, Vinegar Syndrome has some really cool releases, man. They did Ice Cream Man and Liquid Sky and some really cool shit. Typically, their slipcovers are pretty fucking dope. So if it gets one of those, check it out because they go for high dollars once they're out of print. All right. Now, the next thing I saw, which is really cool, I didn't realize, that the just-released Tales from the Hood Part 2 is already streaming on Netflix. So for those who grew up seeing the original one back in the 90s... Oh, fuck. Yeah, this new one. I heard some. That tonight. Yes, I've heard some pretty good things about it. I heard it's not bad at all. So if you have Netflix and you want to check it out, it's available. I mean, I'll be honest. I probably won't watch it tonight because I have so much shit that I want to watch. But I mean, I might. It's worth the check. It's now definitely like in my mind. <laughs> it's a could happen. Yeah, when I saw that, I was like, "What?" I have to talk about that because I'm kind of looking forward to it, man. The first one, so good. It's classic, man. It's yeah. a cult classic. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. But outside of that, man, that's about really all I've got to share. Yeah, I can't think of anything else. So let's get into the guts and bolts of Dario Argento's here with the guts and bolts after we just got stoned and fucked around online <laughs> watching shit about video games for a little bit that's okay man we were nerding out they were pretty fucking dope 
you guys don't mind. You hear it all in the same amount of time anyway, whether we fuck around or not. <laughs> but here we are, Guts and Bolts. We're going to try to stay spoiler-free and talk about sort of like cast and crew, shit that went into this movie, warnings about synopsis, content, yeah. synopsis, trivia that isn't spoilery. Yeah, for the most part. That sort of shit. Sort of try to sell you on the movie if we can. Yeah, this is our pitch. Also, I noticed something. So I, I've been listening through a few other podcasts, just different ones here or there, especially some of the different horror podcasts. Shout out to, you know, all our fucking fellow fucking horror fans out yeah. there. Yeah, it's like we're pretty active for the most part, and we try to do our part and support. There's a lot of podcasts where the thing is they're sitting there and they're drinking beer while they're doing the podcast. And, like, there's times we're sitting here drinking beer. But we're the fried squirms for a reason. Yeah, baby. And it's because we sit here and we get fucking stoned. Yeah, that's our forte. And on all those beer drinking podcasts, they point out what they're drinking. So I thought, maybe we should point out what we're smoking. I'm okay with that. I know I started off by uh, loading up for you in my Firefly 2 a bowl of strawberry cough. And I myself just partook in some uh, Montana silver tip that I had squirreled away. It was my last bud of that. Just before, the tip? Yeah. Before I'm down to just some blue dream and strawberry cough. And nice. I'll tell you what, that Montana silver tip is one of my favorites. But Well, from what I understand, what I've been dipping into in my little personal stash is I've had some Gorilla Glue and Cinex. Oh. Yeah. And... This is an old babe of yours, but I've got that Snoop Dogg's G-Pen Elite <laughs> vaporizer, dry herb, that is. Yeah, so it, it does a trick. That's kind of what I've been chiefing on lately. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, that part's out of the way. Yeah, so that's <laughs> what we're chiefing on for this episode. And shit, what do we got? Oh, synopsis. Yeah, brief synopsis. There's something about this movie that I, I feel like you. I don't want to give away. No, no, I understand. So... A young American girl goes to a, is it German? Yeah, ballet it's German. school? German ballet school. And she arrives in the midst of some troubling goings on that seem to start to extend to her, especially after she succumbs to, or not completely succumbs, but is struck by a mysterious ailment. And what follows is a colorful musical descent into the occult. Yeah, that's without giving too much away. <laughs> yeah, man. So we got to keep in mind that this did come out in 1977. It's by a director that we've actually covered before. And this director is Dario Argento. And we have covered him in a previous episode. We covered opera. opera. Yeah. Which was your first foray into some Argento. Yeah. I'm going to hold back on the fact that I did them in that order. That makes me feel some things. Not bad things. But right, it makes right. me feel some things. But we'll get into that in the next section. Nice. But, but uh, we have talked about him, of course, like I said, on our opera episode. So I'll mention a few films that he has done, which he's done several. But if you want to go back, he started off doing giallos. And we've talked briefly that giallo is the word yellow in Italian. And that was because of some of the Pulp Fiction noir murder mysteries, etc. They were coming out in yellow paperbacks, hardbacks, to distinguish themselves from the rest of fiction literature. So what they did is, Italy was known for that, was making those giallo films, and Dario Dento started off with three. He did The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, he went on to do The Cat of Nine Tails, and he also concluded that with Four Flies and Grey Velvet, which was his animal-themed trilogy. He took a break in between, did a comedy that tanked, and that comedy was called 
the five days. Then he got back into doing it, and he kicked it off with Deep Red, went on to do this film, several others. There's one, I've mentioned Jennifer Connelly now, seems like <laughs> for over a month, but she starred in one with Donald Pleasance in the 80s, and that movie's called Phenomena. Avoid, do, 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 do. Yeah, avoid the name Creepers, because that is like the heavily edited and cut edition of Phenomena, oh. so stay away from that one. That one sucks. No Creepers. No. Stay away from Creepers. <laughs> yeah, do your best to do that. Now, he did... A segment called The Black Cat and the film Two Evil Eyes, which also features Romero. He did two episodes of The Masters of Horror, which we've covered because of Takashi Miike's imprint. But those episodes were Pelts in 2006 and the episode Jennifer in 2005. Now he's also gone on to do such things as Dracula 3D, which I heard is kind of shit. He did Giallo, and he's also known for doing The Phantom of the Opera. So those are some of his films. He's also wrote several. He's also helped score some of his films. And let's just point out also, super highly acclaimed. Oh, no doubt. Mostly because of this movie. Very hard stop. If you haven't watched Suspiria yet, go fucking watch it. Yeah, well, considering that the upcoming... I won't say remake, but it's probably a reimagining of this film. It's coming out soon, so yeah, we kind of did that in tandem with it. But he's also the I'll father. Watch it. He's also the father of Asia Argento, who's kind of gotten some hot water lately. We don't need to. <laughs> no, no, no. But I mean, that, that's almost a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, it certainly could be, but yeah, they are related. For those who are curious, but outside of that, he did help write the screenplay, which was based on a Thomas de Quincey's series of, they were like prose poems. Oh, yeah, it was, a, it was an essay, right? Yeah, the, uh, mostly essays. Uh, Suspiria de Profundis. Yes, yeah, so he was inspired to, by some of those stories, one in particular, which we can get into a little bit later on. But he had help on this screenplay with a long-term partner of his, and that was Daria Nicolodi. Now, she's helped write several things, Mostly, she was an actress actually as well, so keep that in mind. She was in some of his films. I think it started off with, I want to say it was Deep Red, and then for like the next decade or so, they worked on mostly every film during the 70s and 80s. Now, she was also known for doing such things as Paganini Horror. She was uncredited for Demons Part 6, which those demon movies are fucking good, dude. Like I said, she was an actress, and of course she was a long-term partner of Dario Argento. She is the mother of Asia Argento. Now, our cinematographer on this, interesting gentleman, this was Luciano Tavoli. He's done such films as The Passenger. He helped on Dario Argento's Tenebra. He helped on the film The General of the Dead Army. You might have seen more recent films such as Single White Female. He was also the cinematographer on the films Kiss of Death, Titus, and Murder by Numbers. Now, our editor on this, pretty interesting fellow. This is Franco Fraticelli, and like I said, one of those who's worked on several things with Dario. Opera. Yeah, opera. <laughs> like I said, we've talked about this person before as well, but just like any other director, it seems like that we've been covering, usually they'll bring on a team, and like I said, Franco's no strangers he helped on such things as deep red you might have seen things as boys on the outside i mean he's got literally over 183 credits there was one that kind of caught my eye one that maybe down the road we can cover but it's a film called cemetery man okay that movie is fucking dope he's also helped with the church which was a movie that dario argento helped produce i think it's michelle soivy is the one who directed that one it's pretty decent it's in my collection so if you've seen Italian horror, you've probably seen the handiwork 
our editor at Fraticelli. Now, I did talk about the fact that Dario Argento helped with the music because there was a group, a progressive Italian group, who did the score, and that group is called Goblin. And there's something interesting I've been talking about lately because of them, because I'm getting a chance to see them in November, <laughs> which I'm looking forward to, but they've gone on to do some really cool works. I mean, they're composers of music in Dawn of the Dead. They're on the soundtrack of such things as Shaun of the Dead. They're mostly done a lot of work with Dario Argento because if you look back at some of the stuff, it was Deep Red. There was a, an interesting film called Patrick that has to deal with telekinesis and it's kind of a weird horror film. I think it was done out of Australia, but they helped with Beyond the Darkness, which was pretty cool. They were unaccredited for a giallo called The Bloodstained Shadow, which I, I had at one time. It was pretty decent, but yeah, man, some pretty cool works, mostly known for this score in particular. It's right. a pretty um, dope fucking score. When is that you're seeing them? That's coming up really soon, isn't it? I'm going to see them in Portland on, I think it's November the 11th is the date. It's on a Sunday night. So I'll be there during that weekend. Crossing my fingers, I might have something in store for that. Is that them doing this song? Yeah, so what they're doing is because the new film is coming out, mm -hmm. they're going in support of this film to help support that film, I suppose. But it's not the original members. It's just Claudio Simonetti, who's the... He's mostly doing the, a lot of the composition work on the keyboards and synthesizers and things like that. But it's him and some of some other Italian prog rock members. They're going as Claudio Simonetti's Goblin. Oh, because okay. Goblin, the other three guys are still touring as Goblin. As Goblin. I was going to say, because yeah. I know that there was a number of lineup changes for them throughout the years. Exactly. They all got at together which point at one that point. that they were known as certain things, including Claudio Simonetti's Goblin. Yeah, who that's actually who I'm going to see. Now, if I'm not mistaken, they've also like split up and at one point were known as Demonia, which yeah. is another Italian horror film. <laughs> so, yeah, there's all kinds of iterations of Goblin. The new Goblins. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting. But in the meantime, while I was talking about that, there is a podcast I listen to. So shout out to Dead and Lovely podcast. But one of their listeners had like posted something on Facebook about getting to see them in Nashville, Tennessee. So I was like, huh, I'm kind of curious what East Coast dates they're playing because I've got mm -hmm. friends still on the East Coast. So I saw one. I was like, oh, cool, they're playing down in Atlanta on Halloween. And then I saw in December. It's like, hold on. I'm playing in my hometown. <laughs> so if anybody's in Spartanburg listening, go check out Goblin, Claudio Simonetti's Goblin at Ground Zero, which is fucking weird because I've played shows there and I've seen like heavy metal shows there and mm -hmm. all kinds of weird stuff. It's a very interesting Donkey venue. Shows. Maybe. <laughs> can't <laughs> confirm, can't deny. But it's an interesting place, man. It's In Spartanburg, it's known for some really cool acts, like some mostly metal acts and stuff like that. Donkey but shows. Donkey shows. <laughs> so shout out to Mick, too, because that's, man, I'm surprised he got that show. I don't know how the hell he did it. Nice. But yeah. So moving on from Goblin in Dario Argento, we do have a special effects person I wanted to credit, and that was Germano Natale, because he's done some special effects on films such as Deep Red, Inferno, which both of those are Argento films. He's done Lucio Fulci's Contraband. He's also helped on The Beyond, which is another Fulci film we've covered. Mm -hmm. He also helped with the film Hercules, which stars Lou Ferrigno. <laughs> he was also a special effects person on such films as Devil Fish. He helped on Dario Gento's opera. You might have seen the film The Monster. He helped on Titus and also Warriors of the Wasteland. Okay. So those are some of his handiworks. Our producers on this were Claudio Argento and Salvatore Argento. Those are the brother and fathers 
of Dario Argento. And Salvatore is known for being like a predominant producer in Italian film, so big names there. Our production company on this was Seda Spettacoli, SPA Rome. We had our distributors were Produzioni Atlas. They helped with the Italy theatrical release. 20th Century Fox International Classics, which was like a subdivision of Fox. They did this mm-hmm. so that they could get their hands on some of this. They helped with the 1977 USA theatrical release. It was dubbed. EMI helped with the 1977 UK's theatrical release. Release dates were February 1st, 1977. That was in Italy. It had its premiere July 28th, 1977 in the United Kingdom. And here, August 12th, 1977 in the States. Budget, I didn't get a budget for this. I can imagine it probably had a nice little penny considering some of uh, the technology they were using at that time Mm -hmm. and for the prints. Now, it did gross. This was a part of the North American rentals, but it grossed $1.8 million. I'm sure it's made a lot more than that over the years. I do have a couple of taglines because you know I like my taglines. So three of them I have. I think, well, goddamn, this is probably giving way too much away in the taglines, perhaps, if you've never seen this. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with the third one that I have. It says, once you've seen it, you will never again feel safe in the dark. And the other two allude. Uh, some of them are like the scariest movie you've ever seen. Nothing about the dark in this movie is scary. Yeah, the other two, man. You know what? I'll, I'll, this is what I'll do a compromise. Save them? I'll save them for the next section because okay. they're giveaways or spoilers. Okay, we'll put a pin in that and you can start up with those. Yeah, so keep in mind, I do have three, but I'll mention the other two in the okay. next section. Okay. So that kind of rounds out the people. Also, uh, the one that we can say, I don't like. <laughs> it does not fit this movie. Yeah. There's a couple things, yeah, that I know what they're doing. It's all marketing. <laughs> all right. So these are the people that went into making the film. Now we can talk about our cast. And I'll start off with our lead actress, and this is Jessica Harper. She does play the role of Susie Banyan, the American in the film. Now, she's done such things, and she got I, noticed. I was going to say, I the one thing I know is she was cast because of her work in Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise, yep. which I think we should probably cover. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be interesting. I like Brian De Palma. Yeah. It's, uh, have you ever seen Phantom of the Paradise? I don't think I've seen that. It's like no. a musical, horror, comedy, huh. sci-fi reimagining well, of Phantom of the Opera. That's kind of interesting. And the reason I say that is because when you start looking through her film Rock credits, opera? She did a film called Shock Treatment, which was like the, the sequel. sequel to Rocky Horror. And she took the place of Susan Sarandon's character in that film. Damn it, Janet. Yeah, exactly. So it kind of makes sense when you look at it. But you're right. She did get cast in part because Argento liked her and Phantom of the Paradise. She was also in such films as Inserts, Stardust Memories. You might have seen her in The Blue Iguana. Uh, Minority Report. Yeah. She was also in the movie Safe, and she is in the upcoming 2018 Suspiria. She doesn't reprise her role. She has a different part. So... That's who I have as our lead actress. Some other people I do have in this, has got quite a few people, is Stefania Cassini. She plays the character Sarah in this film. Now, you might have seen her in such films as A Pocket Full of Chestnuts. She was in Blood for Dracula. She was in the film called Bad. She was in the Giallo, The Bloodstained Shadow, which I mentioned earlier. Ooh, wait. You should point out she was in Blood for Dracula alongside Udo Kier. Yeah, who was also awesome. in this movie. <laughs> Absolutely. 
Now, she's known for such films as Lantano de Dove, and she was also in the film The Belly of an Architect. Uh, the next actor I have in this is Flavio Bucci. He plays Daniel in this film. He was in such films as Property is No Longer a Theft. He was in the 1970s horror film Night Train Murders. You might have seen him in the film The Magic Mountain, The Incinerator, and The Shell El Divo. He's got a pretty interesting part. I want to mention his part a little bit later on because of another film. All right, now the next person I have, really interesting. He has some really prominent parents in different fields. And this person is Miguel Bosé. He plays the character of Mark. He's not in it for very long, but oh, very hi, interesting. Mark. Hi, Ma oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> oh, great story, Mark. <laughs> yes, all right. There was a few films that he was in, and I'm going to save the big news for the end. So he was in such films as California. You might have seen him in the film Star Night. In the Shade, he was in the film Queen Margot. There was a really pretty Italian actress in that with him. He was in the film French Twist and the film The Naked Eye. Now, he is really known because he was a Spanish pop new wave musician, mostly in Latin America. I think he hit certain parts of Italy and Europe at times and Spain, but most okay. of it was in Latin and South America. Yeah, and I looked up some of his stuff. I actually listened to some of his shit because I was curious. What was it? It's not bad. How, he's he's got a really good Spanish singing voice. Pop new wave. It's not what you would think it is. It's a little bit more poppy, a little bit more glammy, I suppose. Rather than new wavy. Yeah, it's almost a little more disco. Okay. Yeah, not quite disco, but it has that, that almost vibe. makes this even funnier. You know that, right? Oh yeah. Well, if you look, there was an album he brought out. I think it's called Papito. I need a Papito too or whatever. Uh, but if you look at a list of artists that like contributed on there, Michael Stipe, Ricky Martin, Shakira, Damn. like there were some pretty big names. Shakira, Shakira, uh, Shakira, yeah, man. I was like, holy shit, dude! I had no idea until we started doing the credits for him. Oh, he did it. Oh, he saw the opportunity and he took it. The second one uh -huh. to Papito mm -hmm. is Papito. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, what the fuck. But he is on Spotify, man. That's where I listen to some of his music. And like, it's not bad. I mean, I don't necessarily get down to Spanish music per se, but it's enjoyable. I can see the appeal. One of the songs features Penelope Cruz. I like to feature Penelope Cruz. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's pretty cool, man. So he does play the character of Mark. The next actress I have in this is Alita Valley. She plays Mrs. Tanner in this film. Now, she goes way back. Now, from what I understand is she started off in German radio, and then she started making... Her appearances in film. Now she goes back because I believe she was in Alfred Hitchcock film. It's called The Paradigm Case. She was in such films as The Third Man, El Grito, Senso. I didn't realize she was in Eyes Without a Face. That's like, <laughs> that's like classic. Wait, wait, wait. I actually, I want to give her her full name right here. Yeah. As I'm reading it. Because it's not just Alita Valley. <laughs> The Baroness Alida Maria Laura Altenberger von Markenstein Frauenberg. Wow. Baroness? Yeah, yeah. Damn. Yeah, dude. Well, what's interesting, when you see her in this film, she's... I mean, Not you can't, this picture. No, no, no. Like, if you look at some of her young pictures, she was a babe. I mean, I was like, man, damn. Hey, I, I, I still would have. I mean, I'm not saying I would. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, whoa. Yeah, so I, I was saying she was in Eyes Without a Face, which is, if you haven't seen that, man, that's a great film. Go out and check it out. She was also in films Ophelia, The Paper Man. She was in a film called The Antichrist, which is a 1970s, kind of like, I won't say Exorcist, but it's kind of a possession film. She's also in a film that I own called Killer Nun. 
She was in Dario Argento's Inferno, and she was also in the film Angel of Death. Now, the next actress I have, another big name. This is Joan Bennett. She plays Madame Blanc. And if you look her up, she goes way back. She did stuff back in, I believe she started in the 20s. She kind of gained notoriety in the 30s and 40s. She was in Fritz Lang's movies. That's part of the reason why Argento wanted her in this film. He was a big Fritz Lang fan. Now, she's gone on, when you look at some of her works, one that actually I thought was kind of neat is she was in Dark Shadows. She was, was playing like say, the matriarch. In the, uh, she was Emmy-nominated because of Dark Shadows. Exactly. So that's another part of the reason. But, I mean, she goes back, like I said, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. There's just so many films, man. It's hard to sit here and start picking them out. 1933's Little Women. <laughs> I'm pretty sure there's several people seen different iterations of that. Also, Babe. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, she was. Oh, no, yeah, yeah. Oh, I was like, <laughs> I like that movie, babe. But no, she was, man. There was a post I put earlier up on there, and I, I was alluding to the fact, like, I didn't want to give away their pictures for this role. I went back and looked at some older fic- Yeah, and you're right. So she was compared to Hedy Lamar. Yeah, Hedy Lamar, and Hedy Lamar was a babe. Also, Hedy Lamar is awesome. Hedy Lamar held, like, a couple patents for... Yeah, I, I saw that, man. She was an... She was an inventor. Smart chick. Yeah. Shit that she worked on is the basis for like technology we use. Yeah, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and stuff. I I saw that. I think it helped with like uh, was it for like codes and stuff like that during the war. I don't remember. Yeah, I read a little little thing about that. I was like, damn, damn, baby doll. (laughs) (laughs) It's just a whole different time period, man. But yeah. So anyhow, big name in Hollywood, specifically 1920s, 30s, 40s, all the way in the 50s. This is actually her last appearance in film. Was in Suspiria. Okay, so moving on, we do have an actor you have already mentioned, but Udo Kier. He does play the role of Dr. Frank Mendel in this. He's not in it for very long, and so there's kind of an interesting bit of trivia. But when you look at <laughs> Udo Kier's work, he goes kind of back to, I think he started doing stuff with Andy Warhol. A lot of Dracula films, not necessarily as Dracula, but... A lot of vampire films. A lot of vampire. I always remember him from as a Dragonetti and Blade. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty interesting. For he, as big and awesome as a film career as he's had, I'll always think of him as uh, you know being the vampire that had his teeth ripped out by a <laughs> by a fucking Stephen Dorff. Jesus Christ! <laughs> we we were going to mention him in Stephen Dorff just recently. <laughs> yeah, but you've already mentioned the fact that he was in the film Blood for Dracula. He actually helped with the film Flesh for Frankenstein, which I believe, if I'm not mistaken, I believe that was the Andy Warhol film. He's done such thing as Spermula. I was like, whoa, that's kind of interesting. He was... Dracula 3000. Yeah. He was in the film Lola. He goes back. There's a, a really good film that Robin Williams was in. He's not in it for very long. Not Robin Williams, but Udo Kier. It's, the film is called Moscow on the Hudson. Highly recommend it. It's a really good film. But you're right, all the way up until... Can you believe he was in Josh and Sam? Wow. <laughs> yeah, he was in Ace Ventura, Pet Detective as Ron Camp. He was in Johnny Mnemonic. He was in the film Barbed Wire. In my Own Private Idaho. That's actually a pretty good film, dude. Spermula. <laughs> oh, he's in a really cool episode of Masters of Horror. That one is called Cigarette Burns. Dude, that particular episode is fucking hey, you, You've it's mentioned re- it to me before. Really good, dude. Yeah, he's also in such films as Blood Rain, so it's another vampire film. He was in Halloween, that is Rob Zombie's, as Morgan Walker. He's done some really dope films, like some Melancholia. You can look throughout, and 
he's a pretty familiar face <laughs> in film. I'm glad he's in this. I mean, he just kind of makes a cameo, but it's still pretty dope. All right, the next person I do have in here is Ava Axen. She plays Patricia Hingle in this film. She is a Swedish actress. She's been in such films as Death in Venice. You might have seen her in Tis Pity, She's a Whore. She was in the film Ludwig. She was in a film entitled Orpheus 9. She was in an Italian film, Nicchioline e Calizzoni. And she was also in <coughs> Per Questa Notte. Now, we do have another German actor in this. This person is Rudolf Schundler. He plays Professor Milius. I wrote down two because he's been in a shit ton of films, mostly German films. So if you're familiar with old German films, probably seen them. He was in a film entitled Victoria and her Hussar. And he was in the film The Exorcist as Carl. Like, oh, that one's definitely worth noting. Now, the next actress I have in this is Franca Scagnetti. She plays the cook. I don't want to kind of give away our part. Oh. Yeah. But she's been in such films as The Balloon Vendor. She was in the film Napoleon Mystery. She was in the film Violent City, The Scorponi Game, and the film The Secret. The next actress I have is Susanna Yovacoli. She plays Sonia in this film. She's in it real briefly. I'll point out her part. It was in the apartment. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. She was in such films as Private Vices, Public Pleasures, Lunatata, Etsebomba, and Body Puzzle. The next actor I have, he's a young actor in this film, but is Giacopo Mariani. He plays Albert in this film. Super young. Really young. Now, he started off actually in Deep Red, but he was also in such films as The Voyage into the Whirlpool Has Begun. Never seen it. All right, the next person I have in this is Renato Scarpa. He plays Professor Verdegast. He's in such films as Don't Look Now, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and The Tourist. He was the one who administers the shot. Uh, yeah, but I was like, I had to take a look. Really? Like, Talented Mr. Ripley? Wow. Yeah. Damn. He's been in some pretty interesting films. I like, I'll mention them because people should have seen them by now. I did like that film. I was going to say, I knew that that had been adapted before, but I couldn't remember. It was adapted under a different name, and he was the right mm -hmm. age that he could have been in the older one, but it's not. The no, older one in... isn't called The Talented Mr. Ripley. It's <laughs> called something else. Nice. So the next extra I have is Giuseppe Transocchi. He plays Pablo in this film. Pretty recognizable face. He was in... And teeth. And teeth. <laughs> oh, my God. And teeth. <laughs> he was in a film entitled Werewolf in a Girl's Dormitory, and he was in a film entitled Black Jesus. Like, that's pretty cool. Now, some of the other actors I have in this, I didn't really give them too many credits or anything like that, but we should talk about Margarita Horovitz. She plays the teacher in this film. There's the voice of Ted Rusoff as a police inspector. Leila Svasta, she plays Helena Marcos. That's her character in this film. I'll mention how they got her a little bit later on. But yeah, that's pretty much it, man. That's pretty much my cast and crew. We gave you a brief synopsis, some warnings, I suppose. You know what? I, I can do a little bit of trivia to lead into the warnings. Okay. So this film shares a weird pop culture connection to one of the earliest movies that we covered. That movie being Wizard of Gore. They're both mentioned in the movie Juno. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. In that movie, Juno was pretty adamant that Suspiria was the goriest movie ever. <laughs> until she was shown Wizard of Gore. Yeah. So, with a warning, there's gore in this movie. There is gore in this film. It's not as gory as Wizard of Gore. By yeah. the way, Wizard of Gore is pretty tame. Oh, yeah, I mean, by today's standards, no doubt. <laughs> so, some of the imagery in this is kind of fucked up. Like, there's some pretty decent gore shots. 
But it's not bad. It's not. It's more artsy than anything. Yeah, it's more artsy. And spoiler, the blood's kind of a weird color. Yeah, and that's kind of what I'm getting at by the artsy part of it. More so than like the grisly, gory bits. And I think I think that can do a lot to sort of tame down the gore yeah, in this movie. Yeah, it definitely movie. dampens it down. Even the good bits of gore that are in this movie are a little bit subdued by the fact that the blood is kind of orangey. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely looks like paint. <laughs> you know? There's some good, pretty good gore in here. Yeah. Uh, from, from time to time. It's not bad. Yeah, I mean, it's not it's heavy violence. Latin. But yeah, there's uh, definitely violence. There's some... I don't really want to give away too much, but there's yeah. some occult goings on. Yeah, there's some voyeuristic shots and stuff like that. There's some possible forced drug use uh, leading yeah. to hallucinations. Definitely. What are we missing? Anything? Not really. Not without giving too much away. I mean, that's it's more an atmospheric film than anything. Yeah, I agree. I very much agree. The fear isn't coming quite from what you're seeing on screen. It's from how it's making you feel. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, this one is, for the most part, pretty tame in comparison to some other films along the same lines. So let's get into it. Yeah. So we can quit beating around the fucking bush. <laughs> but let's go smoke some more bushes first. I'm ready. Oh, God, what's happening to me? Oh, God, where am I? Why am I hearing these things? Oh, God, what... What's going on? Oh, Jesus, come on. Oh my God, what's, what's going on? Where, where am I? Oh, gee, why, why? Come on, somebody, somebody. Ah. Come on, come on, come on. Come on, somebody. Sir, come on, somebody, somebody's there. Somebody's got to be there. I will shock you. Come on, sir. Come on, sir, you must listen to me. Sir, I only have one question. How does that make you squeal? So we squealing. I should make note that I did forget a credit. It's a pretty big name too, so I should mention it. But before I get called out, <laughs> Olga. Yeah, I was like, God damn it, I did miss a credit. So the actress is Barbara Magnolfi. She is a part of some special featurettes I watched, so I should make mention of that. But she's a really cool actress, man. She's been in such films as The Suspicious Death of a Minor. She was in the film Blazing Flowers. She was in the film The Sister of Ursula. She was in a film by a director we've covered. She was in the film Cut and Run, but it was done by Diodata. She was in the film Disciples, Violent Shit, the movie. That's more recent film. I was like, I have to mention that. That's too fucking funny. That's awesome. Now, if you look at like the database, some of her more recent films have had like cameos of like some big names, Tony Todd, and I think Kane Hodder and some others have been in some more low-grade horror films. So yeah, she's been in a few of those. But anyhow, I did want to make mention that yeah, I recognize I missed a credit, but <laughs> I wanted to talk about her. So anyhow, she plays the character of Olga in this film. So with that, now we can really start talking about this film. First, yeah. we already put a pin in it. We so did. So start with the other two. Okay. The other two <laughs> taglines for this is because, like, man, it kind of gives too much away if you don't know too much about this film. But the first one I had written down is, do you know anything about witches? Okay. Yep. That would have been exactly what I was trying to avoid. Yeah, exactly. And then the second one leads off with, Witchcraft's most macabre tell. Yep. So, like you said, this was my first experience with Suspiria. I had a number of thoughts about it for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons being that my only other experience with Argento has been opera. But first off, there's a couple things that jumped out to me. 
because of the way that people talk about Suspiria that I was not expecting. I've heard about Suspiria for years and years and years, because it's constantly brought up as like this, like, arty masterpiece of the horror genre. And then I get references like the one I already mentioned in Juno, where it's like gore, and I'm like, okay, it's Argento, that makes sense. You know, it's 70s, 80s Italian, that makes sense. Nothing that anybody has ever told me about Suspiria prepared me for how funny it is. It definitely has bits of some dark humor (laughs) and just like some goofiness in general. And nobody ever told me it was a fucking witch story. What the shit? (laughs) That's kind of interesting because the word Suspiria itself translates to either, depending on who you ask, either translates out to sighs or whispers. Mm -hmm. So... The name itself doesn't really imply anything to do with the occult or with witchcraft. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just kind of a a vague term. Had no idea this was a witch movie. Nobody ever brings up the fact that it's a witch movie. At least not that I've ran into in doing my reading about it and stuff. (laughs) Like, that's always super danced around. And instead it's talked about how arty it is and use of color, which completely understand. After watching this movie, I definitely understand why you would talk about use of color, use of sound, use of music. Like, makes complete sense. Wouldn't be the same movie without it. But it's a fucking funny witchcraft movie (laughs) with weird dark humor. Like, everybody that works at the fucking theater or whatever, (laughs) the fucking school. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, here's something that I can kind of talk about is how I discovered Suspiria. And I've kind of alluded to it back like in the early aughts, 01, 02, 03, was where I was getting back into collecting film, you know, DVD and all Mm -hmm. that stuff. But yeah, Best Buy were selling a bunch of Argento collection double disc sets and whatnot. So at that time, I was getting my hands on a lot of that stuff, Suspiria being, I think, the first one. And then I've got like Demons and all of his other films since then. But long story short is I had like a little get together. My sister Ashley and I, when we first moved out after high school, we would invite friends over like Friday, Saturday nights, watch a horror film. I'd usually fucking pass out because I was always working early in the morning. But anyhow, yeah, Suspiria was one of the first ones that we had watched that was actually an Argento film. So that was kind of, if I'm not mistaken, I think that was my formal introduction, not only to Argento, but into Italian like horror film in general, maybe even more, more or less like European horror in general. Which now, I mean, like, Italian horror is kind of your bag, right? Yeah, I mean, dude, (laughs) since this, I've made mention, too, because I wrote a little bit of an article on our website. Because last year, the Roxy Theater put on their 4K restoration of Suspiria. Man, it really stands out. I mean, that's all I'll say, without getting too much into it. But I have seen the original 35mm cut of this film in Montreal. I've got a DVD of it. I've got a Blu-ray of it. I've seen just about every way you can watch this film. Just about. Damn, that's awesome. After watching it, I'm a bit more bummed that I missed that 4K, but it's okay. I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I had something going on. No, it's no I big think deal. I was working. I think it just started. Before I, I want to say they might Friday be playing night. it again sometime soon. I think you're right. I think they're playing it like this week. <laughs> they would, wouldn't they? I think they're playing it this week. Well, uh, anyway, that's something completely nah, different. No, it's, it's all good, but. They're also playing Mandy even more this week. <sighs> Dude, yeah, man. That movie's so fucking good. We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll no get to shit. that. All right. All right, so yeah, my formal introduction would have been around 2001, 2002, somewhere in that time period. And I think that was most people's here, at least maybe my generation, our generations. 
formal introduction because of the release of all these films that really didn't have major distribution in the states otherwise so thank you anchor bay and blue underground and all those companies that helped distribute this film so as i was mentioning before too so since this was my introduction the only other argento i was familiar with is opera exactly and i was like okay opera was kind of stylized in its own way right so i sort of felt like oh i know what i'm getting myself into i had no idea what the fuck i was getting myself into this is nothing like opera no it's it's a completely different film you still know it's an argento film without a doubt it still has his prints all over it but it is a completely different stylized film the narrative is completely different of course yeah, this one, arguably it's everybody's favorite Argento film, is typically people's introduction to Argento. I wouldn't say it's my favorite, but it's definitely like, what, what if it's you not got, in your what top What do you got as your number one? I think of all the films I've seen by him, and like I said, this is very subjective, so I mean, it changes, but... Since this was the lead in any way. Right, right, right. I would say my favorite, man, this is going to sound, maybe between opera, I do like opera a lot, and... I kind of want to say Sleepless, okay, or maybe the Stendhal Syndrome. Those two, I like those two films a lot as well. Like I said, all of his films are they kind of they're a little different in their storytelling. I mean, they have the same overall feel, but they're completely different in the way that they're told. Let me see, what do I have here? Now I should probably actually start taking a look at my notes rather than just. I uh, know, no, no worries. I'm just kind of we're just kind of giving our formal introductions how we were introduced, but this one too, man. Considering its timing, you know, of the new one. I, I feel like, yeah, this is a good way to, to do this, and you kind of agree, too. So it was kind of cool, man. This is kind well, of a back way into Suspiria for you. I probably actually would have watched Suspiria like a year ago, but it was around a year ago. They put out the release date for the new one. Yeah. And so that's when we were kind of like... Yeah, and I mean, it just felt more appropriate. Yeah, we're like, let's do it then. So I was like, cool, I'll just hold off on it. Yeah, so no big deal. That's it's not part like of we the reason I held it. off on it, too. But I'm glad we did, because it was a, a fun way to do it. So let's see here. Getting into the movie. Okay. How about maybe first impressions? Did you take notes during your first or? I, I took notes during my second okay. go through. My first impression of the movie was that everything seemed kind of important, so I didn't know what I needed to remember for later or not. Yeah. I don't know if that was a good or bad thing. I do feel like it might have increased my expectations for some of the little subplots. I thought the one dude being into her was going to pay off in a bigger way because that's set up a couple times earlier on. Yeah. I just didn't know what to think was extremely important because everything seemed really important. But it seemed really important, I think, because looking <laughs> back on it is a good portion. Of the, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but a good portion of the movie kind of just seems like it's an excuse for Argento to play around with a bunch of colors. Oh, yeah. No shit, right? <laughs> I don't mean that in a bad way. No, no, right? I know what you're saying. But he definitely kind of flaunts you know, his talent in this film. And that's the thing, it's talent. Like, there's definitely moments where him doing shit that doesn't make sense, but playing with the colors, mm-hmm. also was wonderful little, like, world building and setups for later. In particular, like, a scene that jumps to mind is that when... God, what's her name? Jessica? Oh, Susie. Susie, Susie yeah. Susie is back at the school. It's post her living at Olga's for a night. Okay and what's her name next door? Sarah? Is that it? Is over, and they're talking about something, and Sarah's like, oh, 15 minutes till dinner, I have to go get ready. They're in conjoined room, so she bounces back over to her place. And you see everything's lit in red, a dark red. (laughs) And Sarah pops into her room, and you can see just enough through the door 
that the light in her room is also a dark red. But as she shuts the door, even though there was light there, Mm -hmm. then the light above her door turns on like she just turned on a light. And it's not red, it's white, which would be fucking impossible for what we were just seeing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it sets up, you know that the rooms are occupied when they have the the white light above, which comes back in like two of the chase sequences later. Yeah, which is really interesting, man. I recently watched this with Ashley and Jeff. Now, Ashley had seen it because, of course, we lived together for a while and... She watched a lot of the same films I watched because that was our form of entertainment for the most part. But anyway, it was Jeff's first time seeing Suspiria. I think he's seen opera before as well, and then just more recently Suspiria. But it was kind of neat getting his perspective too because he pointed out things after watching so many films, the use of color and how they set up certain scenes later on. But not only that, is there are certain parts in the film where if you try to look at it like maybe from a certain character's perspective, it wouldn't make sense because it seems so obvious as the viewer, like when they're in that gymnasium perhaps with the sheets surrounded around them. Mm-hmm. And you can hear and see the silhouette or the shadow of the main witch in the background. And they're discussing like, oh, do you hear that? Do you think that? And you can see it like just look behind you. What you have to keep in mind is like, as a viewer, yeah, we can see all this stuff happening, but to the characters, they can't see that. It's just setting up that scene and setting up the moods and stuff. So it was kind of neat for him to point that out. He's like, I kind of get it. He's like, they don't see it because it's not necessary for them to see. And let's just talk about the artsiness of that scene anyway with them, the way it's framed with them coming together underneath her shadow. Yeah. Literally underneath her shadow coming together to discuss what's been learned about her existence like (laughs) it's amazing i mean certain things like that are really cool and it lends its hand a lot because it was influenced a lot from films such as like snow white and just even fairy tales some of the films like pretty hansel and gretel yeah i mean if you're familiar with the brothers Grimm, i mean that's where a lot of the inspiration for this film came from yeah he wanted the cinematographer tavoli to like make these colors pop in the scheme of like some of those technicolor films back in the 30s and mm-hmm. whatnot. So this was one of the last films to use that process, the technicolor. That's why you're oh, getting wow. all these okay. pretty ass reds and blues and greens and stuff like that, which I'll nerd out about a little bit later on. But yeah, it definitely stands out, man. Just the colors in this. That's another thing. I feel like I might need another, like, eight viewings of this to even read more into some of the color use. Yeah, it's hard to Uh, digest all of that shit in just a couple of views. But one of the things I did take away from it was basically never has the use of color, to me, been so terrifying. Yeah. yeah. Because it was both pretty, but it was always seemed to be used at times to be setting up something. Or to show something just slightly being off. And it was, I don't know, like, I've heard rumors that they're going to try to do a H.P. Lovecraft Color Out of Space movie. And if that's the case, then those motherfuckers need to be studying Suspiria night and day. Because that's how you make colors scare somebody. Yeah, no shit. Is this movie. (laughs) Color will scare you. (laughs) Yeah, man. One thing I can look back to that really stood out to me, maybe my first view, second view, whatever. But one that initially stood out is one of the opening sequences is where the actress who plays Pat, she's going to visit her friend Sonia. This is like when Susie first comes to the Academy during that storm. Mm -hmm. So we find out that something is stalking her, something gets her. It's a little comical when her face gets smushed (laughs) against the window and she's, you know. 
But the part I'm making is, is actually her death sequence. And when she's falling through that stained glass, it's like, that's pretty memorable. It's one of those that kind of sticks with you. Okay, so you know what's kind of fucked up? Her character's full name, Patricia Hingle. Pat Hingle is a character actor oh, no from like the 50s through probably like 80s. Okay. He almost died in 1960 from a fall huh. on an elevator. Wow. Pat Hingle. I did not know that. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he would use that too, <laughs> knowing our Oh, uh, he definitely went up through the 80s because I know exactly what you would have seen Pat Hingle in. He was Commissioner Gordon oh, wow. in the Tim Burton Batmans. No kidding. Huh. That is pretty interesting. <laughs> well, kudos. <laughs> kudos to these gentlemen for using that reference in The Gentleman. Right? Yeah, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, do you think that was on purpose? Oh, Knowing, like, some of the actresses in this film mm-hmm. in the time periods, oh, yeah, I'm pretty sure. There's an ode, a nod somehow. But you got to remember, too, I think Argento got his start doing the spaghetti westerns, man, with uh, Once Upon a Time in the West. Right. So he would have been familiar with American cinema. So one of the things, as I was looking around after doing my viewing and to take a couple, you know, get a little bit of trivia and take my notes and shit, I did see a couple people pointing out how convenient it is at the end of the movie that she finally remembers everything that was said. Yeah. Like, the entire time, that rang true to me to the fact that Argeno got his start in Giallos. Giallos, like you said, was part of the pulp fiction. It's just like in fucking Sin City when Brittany Murphy <laughs> is yelling after Clive Owen and he doesn't quite hear her right until the very end when it's too late. Yeah, yeah. And he's already killed the cop. Whoops. <laughs> but it's She's just not, kind of... She wasn't yelling, stop. <laughs> it is kind of interesting, man, that method. But, I mean, this guy, he knows what he's doing. Let's put it that way. Yeah. yeah. But that was total pulp. Yeah. I bought it through and through. And I mean, that's kind of the thing, too. I know initially this film, Argento wanted to cast like young girls, like 12, 13 year old girls. So this film, in a way, still keeps some of that element, but they still use adult. Oh, that makes the fucking sticking their tongues out at each other make so much more sense. Well, if you look through like maybe your next couple of viewings, pay attention to where the door handles are located on the door itself in relation to the actors. And it's usually still high above like what a children would have to use. Oh. So they still kept some of those elements. The producers or production company was like, if you use children, there's no way this is going to get it released. So they had to use older actors and actresses. Which I think you could get away with it today, which makes me almost sad that Luca didn't try for that. I don't know. Because we did, I mean, I watched the trailer right before we started this. Yeah, I was kind of looking a little bit of it. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to watch too much. It looks good. Yeah, Um, it's going to be dope, man. I'm looking forward to it already. Like you said, I don't know what to expect because it's supposed to be more of an homage than anything. And you could sort of tell that from what they showed in the trailer. It's definitely not a straight across. But, I mean, Shape of Water was basically an homage to Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it still kept certain core elements but i mean there was a completely different telling all the all the uh, also tilda swinton's in it and i'm all about me some fucking tilda swinton's so. yeah tom york scores it so what i'm kind of curious too is i know we're kind of bouncing but i think you probably knew a little bit more about the upcoming film more so than this film 
going and into this episode? A little not, bit? Not, not really. Does it change the way that you perhaps view the film coming up, like the reimagining Luca's? Uh, I'm a bit more excited for it. Yeah. Just knowing what he's paying homage to. That's what I was getting at, maybe a little bit without saying it, is the witchcraft element of it. I'm curious what they do with that. Because even from the trailer, it seems like it's more apparent from the get-go mm-hmm. in Luca's. Whereas in this, it's almost non-existent. It's subtle. It's very subtle in the background. So, obviously I haven't seen them, since this and opera are the only two Argento I've seen. But in my research, I saw that it's explained a little bit more in the other two yeah. movies of the Mother's It's Mother's pretty trilogy. much spelled out in Mother of Tears. Tenebra has a little bit more exposition, not as much as Mother of Tears, a lot more so than this film. This film is very subtle about it. There's a little expo, of course, but it's pretty much subtle. As to, like, alluding to the other mothers. Right. So, what is going on with all of that? Okay. So, from what I understand, as a part of De Quincey's work... So, the three mothers came from De Quincey's essay in this section entitled Levana and Our Ladies of Sorrow. He said that there were three fates and three graces, and along with those, there were also three sorrows. So, those sorrows are Mata Lacramorum, which is Our Lady of Tears, Matra Suspiriorum, which one we're talking about today, Our Lady of Sighs, and Mater Tenebrarum, which is Our Lady of Darkness. So tears, sighs, and darkness. So what is kind of neat about that is that was a, some of the inspiration, of course, for this film. The other inspiration, at least on Argento side, is he was traveling around certain European cities like Prague, which is in Czechoslovakia, or mm-hmm. Czech Republic. He was in Lyon in France. He was in Turin. Also, I really want to go to Prague. So if any of our Ooh. listeners wants to foot Check the streets. bill to send me to Prague, just let me know. I'd be up for Euro trip, bro. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm okay with that. Me excuse. <laughs> Scotty doesn't know. Yeah, he doesn't need it though. <laughs> That's so funny. All right. So when he was in Turin, he made note. Now, you got to keep in mind that most Italians are Roman Catholic, of course. So they still hold on to certain superstitions. Now, Torino, I don't know if it still holds true, but at one time it was kind of like the center of witchcraft, typically black magic, witchcraft, Satanism. So there was like thousands, uh, you know, like tens of thousands of Mm -hmm. people living in Torino, Turin, Italy. So he was like, yeah, this is the most, I won't say evil, but he's like, this is where the most witchcraft happens. He also made note that there's a place called the Magic Triangle, which is where the borders of Switzerland, Germany, and France meet. And that apparently has a high concentration of, like, weird, supernatural kind of events. A lot of witchcraft. <laughs> he just made note that there are certain places, whether it's coincidence or just in essays, etc., that have these kind of, like, magical mm-hmm. centers. London being one and San Francisco apparently being another one <laughs> for whatever reasons. But he used some of that, right? He wanted to use some of those locations. And because of the Three Mothers... He kind of, later on, as he was crafting this story together, he wanted there to be different witches located in different parts of the world, and they're controlling certain aspects, whether it's like the Suspiria, Mm -hmm. the darkness, all that stuff. So for him, it was kind of like a a bigger picture, so to speak. So that's kind of why he's using this. Daria Nicolodi, she had a grandmother. This is from her grandmother saying that she was going to take piano lessons in an unnamed academy. I don't know if it was in Germany, but... She said that it was kind of an affront for witches, witchcraft, and black magic. 
and she learned about it and it spooked her, so she left. So some of that and some of her dreams kind of played into it, like kind of the last part of the film where she's actually in the inner sanctum mm-hmm. of Helena Marcos. She said she had a dream similar to that, so that's where some of that gets incorporated into this film. But yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the impetus for it. Some of these essays, just their travels, fairy tales, etc. All right. Just pop through the movie really quickly yeah, just to yeah. make sure I don't forget anything. So she shows up in the beginning. Mm-hmm. And we find out it's Sarah that didn't let her in. Yeah, Sarah didn't let her in. I guess it was her friend, Patty, was yelling stuff out. It was mm-hmm. inaudible because there was a fucking torrential rain pour down in Munich mm-hmm. that was going on. So, yeah, she couldn't make out what she was saying. She just know that she was in a hurry. She left. And then later on, through a series of events, we find out she got murdered. The taxi going through the trees was one of the coolest shots in the movie for me. Yeah, By the dude. way, I'm going to point that out before we're too much past it. It is a really cool scene. There's so much in this movie that's really pretty, and so I didn't want to point out everything, so I wrote down just one or two yeah, things, dude. and that's one of them that really caught my eye for some reason. But shit, yeah. People get killed. She finally <laughs> gets to go there the next day. Oh my god, Pablo on the fucking staircase with his teeth. <laughs> yeah, I was, I like, was dude. fucking dying. Plus, fucking what's-her-name anyway. Miss Tanner? Yeah. She's over the top. How does nobody talk about that more often? She is... First off, her character is insane and over-the-top, but amazingly well done. Yeah. She... Completely It's a memorable part. But completely believable. Yeah, for sure. 100% believable. Given that not only is it, you know, taking place in Germany, but she fits that persona of a very authoritarian character... And I feel setting. like I've seen that character parodied yeah. and not given enough credit. You know what I mean? It would like, make sense, though, that that would be who they're spinning that off of. And I can't think of in what right now, but I feel like I've seen that character parodied before, if not numerous times. <laughs> yeah. And Maybe not probably, name, but yeah. Yeah, and probably not given nearly enough credit. Jesus fuck. Like, that would stand out for me. Goddamn. <laughs> That's a treasure. That's up there with fucking mommy and daddy and goddamn people <laughs> under the stairs for me. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's pretty memorable character in this film. Oh, my God. And Pablo and his goddamn teeth. Oh, he has teeth? Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's funny how, you know, Susie learns about this because they are on the staircase, and Mrs. Tanner is kind of introducing her to people in the academy, and she talks about the fact that he's handsome, especially now that he has his new teeth. (laughs) And he's proud of it. You can tell he's proud of his new teeth. And that's when she eye fucks. Oh, yeah. Hi, Mark. Yeah. Uh, Hey, Mark. (laughs) <laughs> which i mean here's something i mean this is probably up for debate perhaps but i was listening to something interesting and reading some interesting things about the male characters in this film okay now we get pavlo who we're talking about who never has a spoken word in this entire film so right all right so he's, he's the ralph garman of this yeah bitch. he's the mute we have daniel who's the blind pianist uh, that was for you jesse <laughs> you're the only one that's going to catch that that's reference. Really funny. <laughs> all right so we have daniel the blind guy so we already have a deaf guy and we have a mute guy and then we're talking about mark it's been alluded by some people not necessarily me but by some people that he could be the homosexual character in this film pablo no 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 oh, mark mark how oh, mark mark like i said it's, I it's debatable I think, I think he wanted it he was flirting enough I think there was something else going on. I think there was something witchy going on. I think they, yeah. they had control of his soul or something. Oh, they were playing on his hormones mm-hmm. or <laughs> something. It's debatable is what I'm getting at. But, but I what, think he wanted it. I won't blame him. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm getting at is that 
the way that Argento and perhaps Nicolotti as well with her screenplay writing, they're using the male characters in a way where it's not them or us who are inflicting like these internal conflicts mm-hmm. on women, you know, protagonists and whatnot. It's strictly, for the most part, a way of showcasing women that are both good and evil in the film, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Without there being any kind of male dominance in the film. So that was kind of an interesting point, too. Wow. That goes a really deep place, especially for what I'm going to bring up, is that the ridiculousness of uh, Pablo and uh, Miss Tanner. Tanner, right? Yeah, Miss Tanner. Miss Tanner. Goes right into the ridiculousness of that fucking dressing room scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's... That is a funny sequence of how... It's like 10 straight minutes of this movie that's fucking hilarious. Yeah, just the whole introduction is the whole academy. It's, like, it's, it's over the top. And that's why I'm saying like it's interesting. And gorgeous. All, oh, it's, all of it's pretty. I'm so surprised. I do like really pretty things, and occasionally I like gaudy things. Like I've pointed out, I liked that silver suit in that one movie. Oh, man. Shit like that. Yeah. But uh, in a, uh, it was The Raven. You yeah, know. the robe. Yeah. Vincent Price's. Yeah. Dude, so dope. But normally, like, I feel like a house with that much shit in it would, or I guess it's not a house, but you know what but I mean. But yeah, the set itself. Just having that much shit in it would be over the top for me. I totally dug it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I wanted to be there. It's all aesthetically pleasing, mm-hmm. and it's all done on purpose. That's kind of a trademark of Argento. He likes to use those set designs. We'll get back to that. I made a note about it. But no, no. Gee, yeah, this is like that scene in the dressing room. Susie's being introduced to all the dancers. And that's where Olga and Sarah... They're all trying to make a buck. <laughs> yeah. They're all, try- like you said, trying to make a buck. One of my favorite lines, and one of the most quotable lines perhaps in this film, is what Olga says to Sarah and Susie about all girls who have names that start with an S are snakes. Are snakes. <laughs> and then they started sticking their tongues out. And that's why I'm saying it's like... Knowing that this film initially was supposed to have much younger girls in this film. Yeah, if it's like 12-year-olds, pretty much that entire scene makes a lot more sense. That's what I'm getting at. Because when you look at it from the view of the actual actresses, it's like, man, that is. there's no way they'd have that conversation like that. None of that scene plays out like that. No, no, no. That's what I'm saying. You can't take that too serious or too literal, you know? Just know that that was intended for younger actresses. So, it's not totally revealed, but by the end, you're like, oh, all this shit is happening to Susie because of a witch's curse. And then at the very end, she hears them planning on getting her. Yeah, fucking her up. Yeah. But at what point did they start fucking with her specifically? Or why, I guess, and at what point? That's a good point. Because after my first time through... Mm -hmm. Now, you know, after I get done with it the first time and I'm like, oh, it turns out it's witches, yeah, curses yeah, yeah. were involved, that explains some of the goings on in the first half of the movie. She must have pissed them off when she had that really weird, stern talking with Madame Blanc about wanting to stay at Olga's. And then my second time through, I realized, no, they started fucking with her about 15 minutes before that happened in real time, not movie time. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. And that made it a lot less clear why they started cursing her to begin with. Is it just because she was a witness, basically? I think she was too involved with Sarah, of course, and what Sarah knew. But Sarah didn't tell her anything till they no, made her move back. Much after, yeah. To the... 
So the only thing well, I could think of she, was because she saw all that stuff in the beginning too. I was basically in the I woods. Was say, and... The only thing I could think of is because she spoke up on her way up the stairs. Yeah. To the policeman. Yeah, that was like man. That's I was almost the next morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, essentially, it was the very next morning. So you're right. She knew too much way too soon. As soon as she got there, like you said, shit was under peril. And who knows how long it's been going on prior to that as well. But yeah, she just came into a situation at the wrong time. Maybe it was the right time. Maybe it was planned before that. Who knows? But then it also seems like the first time she's fucked with was by the kid. Mm -hmm. And was that planned by blank or was that just the kid being a spiteful little dick, which is probably what got him fucking bit by the dog in the first place later on. And then they had to just cover up for it. Yeah. You know, with her speaking out, and that's, I'm, I'm trying to think if that's when she comes back to Because it kind of seemed like she was willing to let that slide because all it was was like, it almost confirmed Madame Blank's story because she's like, there, you just heard from her. She was leaving at 11. Yeah. Well, from uh, Olga's, like her character, this is the insight that I got from listening to her interview, right? Mm-hmm. Is Barbara, she was saying that when she was cast for this, right? She was given the script. She said at some point during filming, she had certain makeup on, and Argento stopped and was like, who did your makeup? And like, you know, makeup artist. Who else? He's like, well, what I want you to do, he says, I want you to redo your makeup. I think about how Olga would wear it, being Olga, their character, right? And so she did it, and he was like, all right, perfect. So what she said is on set, and over time, he kept calling her his little witch. <laughs> So she felt like her character was setting that whole thing up, too, with, like, finding a way to get Susie back in. She was a person who was kind of, like, reeling him in. She was the bait. And what she was saying, too, was, like, was oh, her last year at the Academy. Oh, Olga, and when she started talking to Olga and mentioned the secret iris, yeah, she that's knows when too they much. called her back in. Yeah, she already knows too much. Oh, fuck, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, so... That's kind of an interesting bit of insight, too, is this is from the actress herself is saying that she knew that she was kind of bait for Susie for those witches and that she was a witch in training. Also, when they said secret iris, I thought the iris of an eye. The eye, yeah. I, I did not think well, flower. It's interesting, too, because that could be, in a weird way, reference to Argento. He likes to use eyeballs. Uh, and you, <laughs> I mean, he likes to use voyeuristic shots in his films. He wants you to see it, you know, usually from the killer's point of view or just mm-hmm. from an outsider's point of view. Yeah. Well, and I didn't think it was going to be so literal either. Yeah, so I thought <laughs> Secret Eye was going to be... Yeah, until you actually see the iris. What I thought was cool, too, is knowing that a lot of the set design, like the wallpapers and just some of the, whether it's paintings and you know stencils and stuff on the background, was uh, inspired by M.C. Escher. So, oh, right. And yeah. it's... Uh... Escherstrasse. Yep. So, yeah, that's pretty apparent. So, oh, that's a good little tie-in. This is another movie kind of like The Shining. Because there's only so many movies that you can compare the genius that is Suspiria to. Yeah. Where, to me, part of the way that they make you feel trapped is through the architecture. Oh, no doubt. And the way that Argento plays with framing the characters within the architecture. It seemed to me that a lot of the times when they were in some sort of danger, they were in some way boxed in towards the middle of the frame by like arches or doorways or even just choices between having one hallway or another and them being in the exact center (laughs) and not having a clear way to actually go. Yeah, precisely. There's a certain symmetry, like you said, too, to it. Yeah. 
I thought that was fucking beautiful and really neat. Something that really stood out to me, especially the second time through. I had glimpses of it the first time through, especially because some of it's really obvious. Like, ooh, when Pat in the beginning is like pounding on the doors yeah, and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The way she's framed in and all that. And it's also just scenery porn because all those sets are fucking gorgeous. Man. But... <laughs> it's ridiculous, dude, like the set design on this. But it's also, unlike The Shining, which is kind of just bland and it's supposed to be because it's kind of like part of the terror is just like this stuck with this monotony and blandness and stuff. This was a little bit more subtle and almost sinister because it was such a beautiful set that brought you in. (laughs) Yeah. Only for it to be so confusing and just enveloping once you were in the situation that it was trying to bring you towards. Yeah, it's not a place using those primary colors to the pop when I was talking about using the Technicolor. It just makes those colors just really pop. It doesn't feel like, yeah, you should be witnessing this kind of, not evil, but just like, man, someone's about to get fucking killed, (laughs) you know? It's very unsettling. It's a stark contrast to normal, like the dark tones that you would get normally. So, okay, I keep bringing up the dark humor in this. And this is one moment that just for me made me laugh. I know it wasn't intended to be funny because the movie it made me think of wouldn't be put out for another <laughs> 10 years. But when they cut into the ballet practice, the one where she starts... Yeah, tripping. Mm-hmm, <laughs> the exercise they were going through and the movements they were going yeah. through, all I could think of was the ballet scene and Top Secret. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just sort of started imagining just like people running across ballerinos' boners, and I started <laughs> laughing really hard. That <laughs> shit happens. Oh, so yeah, ballerino is correct, by the way. Yeah. Uh, a male ballerina is a ballerino. Yeah, you're using proper. Uh, That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you got it. But I yeah, just that, started... scene, that scene is a little over the top, too, with her. It's not too over the top. No, though. I mean, it's not the it's worst not you're going to ever see. It's not over the top enough that I should have been laughing as hard as I was. That's kind of what I'm getting. It's like, it, it is getting there. It's getting to the edge of like, oh, that's a little too much. But it's still done artfully. Oh, Madame Blanc. Okay. There's a part where, uh, God, I keep for Susie. Yeah, Susie. I don't know why I can't, can't <laughs> keep this straight. When Susie's in there talking to her, and there's the part where she tells her straight up about the secret iris. Yeah. And the way she repeats it back to her also made me laugh really hard <laughs> to the point that I had to write it down because it was just the phrasing of it <laughs> yeah, yeah. when she says, I don't know what the word secret or irises mean either. <laughs> yeah. And I was just Maybe like, we should call the police. <laughs> I was just thinking like, we could bust out the dictionary and I could tell you exactly <laughs> what the word secret and iris mean. Yeah. And we can also look up words that are synonyms <laughs> by using the source. <laughs> I'm like, this would not be hard. Yeah, that is kind of... Something about her phrasing, though, I fucking... I lost it. Yeah. This movie... (laughs) Why does nobody talk about how fucking funny Suspiria is? It is, man. I mean, after watching it several times, it's hard not to point out some of the comical bits. Like I said, just even Pat, before she gets, like, brutally murdered, just her face getting smushed against the fucking window pane... (laughs) <laughs> the way her face is smearing and shit. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, it's horrific, but it's comical when you know that you're just filming it. Oh, and okay. so we work in the world of grocery. Yeah. When Sarah's getting attacked, can uh, you tell me what she did wrong about building her stack? <laughs> <laughs> Damn, yeah. 
She's not doing it right. <laughs> <laughs> and that fucking bottom box fucking breaks. Jesus Christ, man. With the latch being used just to fucking terrify her, because there's no way that you that can't get that. That is too funny, man. On the first time. Yeah. I just totally that, Seriously, wonder. all you have to do, this. You yeah. have to lift it one inch, two inches And higher. then that's the thing, is like the lingering on that shot, too. It's like, you know, they're <laughs> fucking with him. Yeah. Here I come. <laughs> I'm just going to jingle it. Yeah. <laughs> She's still getting freaked out. All I'm doing is jingling it. I could have flipped this at any I, time. That's an easy kill right there, and I just told him with it. Was that supposed to be razor wire? Honestly, that scene They took was the barbs out, yeah. Out of everything in this movie, and I... Fucking this movie's genius. I keep repeating, go fucking watch it. Don't listen to us talk about it. Go watch it. But that fucking razor wire shot was like the most disappointing part of this movie, because I know Argento can do gore. I know he's already done pretty good gore in this movie. Yeah. With like the heart stabbing. Oh, yeah. And no the doubt. shit through the head. Jesus. And it seemed like they cared way more about the continuity of her thrashing around in it <laughs> yeah. rather than making it look like it was having any effect on her whatsoever. Because it appeared more that she just fell into a bunch of giant slinkies. <laughs> I, that's exactly what I told Jeff when we were watching it. <laughs> like, that's just some slinky she got caught up in. <laughs> Damn it. That was the only thing where I was like, come yeah. on. Like, I know you can fucking do this. And you do I, do like four cutaways. It's not just like this long cut of yeah, her thrashing. Yeah. <laughs> like, if it was a two minute long cut of her thrashing just for like the intensity of her terror and freak out, then I'd get it. You can't yeah, get precisely. in there to like put the makeup on. But he makes, like, four cuts. Yeah. It makes me wonder, too, if they had, like, extra barbed wire just hanging out. Like, That's the other thing. It. it looks like it's supposed to be razor wire, in which case, with all that thrashing, she should probably be really fucked up. Yeah, no doubt. If you want her to be not that fucked up, make it barbed wire. You're still going to get fucked up. Not as bad as razor wire. Man. Yeah, At for least for what she was doing. Yeah, from what I understand, too, is when she fell into that pit, like when she was actually filming it or when she was in that scene, is that she was freaking out. Mm -hmm. And she says she got more pinched than anything. She said, like, after the shoot, she had, like, hundreds of little bruises all over her body because she was thrashing around and shit. Yeah. So, I mean, here's what I do know about this film upon rewatching it and doing research and all that good stuff is that a lot of this filming, because it was done mostly on set, uh, they did shoot in Italy mostly, but that's for the interiors, of course. But a lot of the actors and actresses didn't speak the same language, so a lot of this was dubbed in later, like after shooting. And Argento liked to play like brooding music, some of the Goblin soundtrack and shit mm-hmm. while they were filming. And it would not be uncommon for the actors and actresses on set to hear like other crew members working on other sets as they're filming. And so it's a little chaotic, but he does that to create that fear in the actors. So they're still, even though they might know like kind of what the scene's going to be about, it's still kind of a genuine emotion that they're exerting on camera. Mm-hmm. You know, so I thought it was kind of neat. Also, this movie is only half as good without the Goblin soundtrack. Man, yeah, you take that away. It's just, it totally takes away a big part of the atmosphere in this film. So, we haven't done any Mario Bava yet. Not yet. Can I expect another dope soundtrack there? Because so far, the Italians are slaying. Yeah. Because I think of all the movies we've covered, what, 91 episodes in? Is that what we said? Yeah, we're 91 in. 
my top three soundtracks that we've had to listen to in 91 movies have been Cannibal Holocaust, yeah. Italian movie. Of course. The Beyond, yeah. Italian Ultimate, movie. Yeah. And now this. Yeah. I love Goblin, dude. <laughs> There's a reason I want to go see them. Yeah. Know? So when we do eventually cover some Bava, do I get to expect the same thing? Are it, they going to knock it out of the park again? Yeah. You're not going to be disappointed by any of the Italians in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be horror. Like we were talking, the spaghetti westerns have classic soundtracks. Oh, of course. You know, uh, so, you know I get down to some, some Yeah, and I mean, they have a history with music, of course, because of just classic composers. I mean... <laughs> Operas, etc. Uh, but anyhow, you're not going to be let down. Like Bava, both the Bavas, Lamberto and Mario Bava. Yeah. The sound design is almost quintessential in Italian film. That has me so excited. We are going to get back to Italian movies quickly. Yeah, Goodbye. I love Italian <laughs> films. Man. And there's so many cool ones, too, like so we haven't even really talked about. Seriously, I mean, this score elevates this movie in such a big, bad way. Yeah, and that's kind of what I was kind of curious, too, about this upcoming one is with Tom York, because that's his like literally his first film he's ever composed for. It's like, man, you're not going to be a goblin. So you have to bring you're a part of yourself. You're going to do something else. Yeah. yeah. And I know he's got like three songs, I think three or four songs that he's released leading up into the release. But I've listened to a little bit of one of them and it's nothing like goblin. So don't anticipate like what they brought to this film. Completely two different films, but iconic, man. If you think of goblin, typically this is the film you're going to think about. So first time through. Mm-hmm. How to make the note? I straight up missed Udo. I, I didn't even recognize young Udo. Yeah. I was just like, the second time through, I was like, oh shit. Oh That's shit. Him. <laughs> yeah, I mean, because he, he was a handsome guy. And then uh, it made me really sad because I know he's not in the remake, and I wished that he was playing the role of the older professor that is into wishes. Yeah, I like the crazy looking one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, here's something that's interesting about that guy. As I mentioned, that he was. A German actor mostly, and he didn't speak Italian or English. So in that scene where he's talking to Jessica Harper, he's doing it all in German to her. (laughs) And she said that she had to try to keep a straight face because she didn't know what the hell he was saying. She doesn't speak German. Yeah, as I'm saying, is like a lot of that (laughs) is that they would speak their native tongue to each other and they would dub that shit in later. So there's a little bit of chaos there. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, I can only imagine. Backing up just a little bit, I did think it was extremely obvious that the doctor's still keeping her on red wine. I'm like, oh, well, that's drugs. Man, especially when she pours it in the sink, it stains the (laughs) fuck out of that sink. I'm like, you know, you're not supposed to have to scrub off wine. No, and she does a (laughs) half-ass job of it on top of it. It's like, not only does she dump it, but she's making it pretty obvious that she's the one who did it. She doesn't even do like a good cleaning job. But immediately, as soon as she was like, yeah, well, doctor said, still just a glass of wine, though. And I was like, oh, well, that's drugs. Yeah, yeah you're getting drugged up for sure. I'm like, you're, you're on all the drugs. That's what fucks Sarah up in the long run is because she's on that wine diet, mm-hmm. <laughs> she falls asleep. And that's when Sarah meets her end. And then let's see. I mean, getting into the end, when they reveal all the witch stuff, that all happens. It feels like really quickly. It's pretty quick, it is. Because she finds out about witches. I mean, Sarah tells her, 
and she decides to follow that lead and it just all sort of leads to her already knowing about the footsteps and shit which was all really neat and set up earlier in the movie yeah. but it all just goes really quick like i said the witch stuff is really kind of skipped over in this movie for the most it, it part ki- it really is that other kind than of... other than that is that's the reason why yeah. all this weirdness has been happening and that's kind of what sense. yeah it makes it all make sense precisely it's like he does it in a way where that's not necessarily the or say all end all so in that regard he builds more of that atmosphere the dread the tension you know all the stuff that makes you kind of on edge you know a little nervous or not the fight with mother size <laughs> yeah mother it's kind of silly mother whispers would have been a letdown if undead sarah wouldn't have been so dope looking yeah that was pretty good I think if those effects wouldn't have been so good, then I really would have been a little bit let down by that entire sequence. But those effects were really good, so I was kind of okay with how it all happened. Uh, From what I understand, I don't know how it was pulled off, but I heard that like the outline of Mm -hmm. the Helena Marcos character was done in frame using like whatever effects in the camera. So I was like, that's kind of neat. Oh, wow. I wonder how they did that then. That's what I'm, I'm not sure exactly. Because I thought for sure that was rotoscoped. No, they like they did it in lens. Oh, that was kind of cool. Wow, okay. Yeah, and that's part of what... That makes me have a little bit more respect for it, at least. And it's like the Daria Nicolodi, when she said she had the dream, that was part of her dream, is that she encountered this silhouette of a witch, and a panther was in the room, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So they were going full serpent in the rainbow. Yeah, yeah. So it was on a ayahuasca is what I'm getting at. <laughs> but that would have made it almost exactly like Serpent. Well, all right, all right. Hold on. This is kind of weird in a way. Not really, but kind of. With some of those De Quincey essays, some of it involved... Drugs. Yeah, like opiums. Okay. And like having fever dreams and shit. So there's another aspect of this Sweet. film that owes to the fact that to this drugs. is... drugs. Yeah, it's drugs and fever dreams and what you get out of it internally. I all right, I'm down. Yeah, so, yeah, this film is very drug-induced. She gets out at the end. It was all good. I liked yeah. it. <laughs> well, I mean, some of the exposition... I was, to, yeah, I was trying to think of the other stuff from the ending, but like I said, it all ends up wrapping up really quick. I, like, it's pretty. I, I remember that. Like, there's I love something, her, like, creeping down the hallway and shit. There's something that leads right up to before she stabs Helena Marcos, I want to point out, because it's an homage to his very first film. Is, okay. When you see Susie go into the inner sanctum, the bedroom or whatever yeah. of Helena, you see this peacock with like oh, yeah, these, yeah, yeah. those glass needles or whatever, pins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the fucking NBC cock. Yeah. That is an homage to his very first film, The Bird with a Crystal Plumage. Oh. Yeah. I did think it was rather prominent in the scene, but I thought it was just a neat visual to go and along with is, all the other pretty visuals. Man, that's a dope visual. That prism, too, when she gets hit in the face with it. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a really fucking dope sequence. <laughs> like, I like how that whole scene in the hallway changes between the cook mm-hmm. and that little kid, Albert. It's like, man, that shit is fucking wild. Oh, the fucking... It's like a dream sequence. Oh, I, I skipped over it, but the dog ripping at the neck was dope. Yeah, that was Not at scene. first, but then, like, when it pulls away for a second and you yeah. see, like, the strands <laughs> of tissue and stuff coming up, that was sick. That was cool. Now, there's a film that I used to give shit to that we covered. Okay. Before I knew it was, like, done in a way where it was, they were paying homage to their friend was The Beyond... There's the scene with the blind lady who gets oh, her throat yeah, who ripped gets out. Her, yeah, yeah. I mean, Fulci used that because of the scene with Daniel in the courtyard, oh. <laughs> getting his throat ripped out. Oh. So it was, yeah. it was an homage scene, is all it was. But I was like, man, that's such a ripoff. That's such a cheap trick. 
And I didn't know any better. I was being stupid. <laughs> God, I just hope people go watch this movie. Yeah. Like, I don't, I don't, I feel like there's a lot more that could be said about this movie, but it would probably require me to watch it another two or three times just to, like, talk about framing and color and shit. Oh, no like, doubt. There's a, a few things I want to mention before we, you know, kind of wrap it up is there's some really cool things about this film that involve some history. There's some things that involve the occult. And there's some things that involve Germany in general. So part of the reason why I'm drinking a German beer, too, is that because this film is shot, the actual place in the film, the setting, is supposed to be in Freiburg. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Some of the scenes were shot in Munich, right? Some of the exterior shots were shot, specifically in locations that have to do with Nazi Germany. And so I want to talk about that just for a few seconds. So in my notes, I wrote down that one of the first scenes I that think, you see... I think we're supposed to call them alt-right Germany now. <laughs> alt-right Germans. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> All right. So one of the first things that you see is Susie Banyan flying into an airport. Now, that airport is the Munich Crime Airport. Now, it shut down in 1992 because the Munich airport took its place. But that airport was designed by a Nazi. And the Nazi's name is Ernst Sagbiel. And it opened in 1939. Oh, Ernst. Yeah. And so what happens is, is like during these shots, while Susie's going to the academy, like there's some pretty prominent places if you follow like Hitler's history and Nazi Germany. So after that shot, you see her in the taxi cab. And Mm -hmm. one of the first things they pass is a place called the Maximilians Bridge. And that's in Munich. And it says there's a poster for a demo of this artist. And that artist's name is Oskar Kokoschka. He was an Austrian artist. And apparently, he was considered the most degenerate of all the artists in the Nazi-occupied Germany and Austria at that time. I looked at some of his artwork. Oh, Oscar. You know, I was looking at some of his artwork. And, man, it's a far stretch to call his shit, like... I don't know, suggestive or degenerate. No. <laughs> no, I mean it's it's de- I mean it's certainly art. But there's no degeneracy behind it. Maybe some of its themes. Was he a degenerate? Was he No, I mean he was a pretty well respected artist and mm. person. Yeah, Hitler considered him the greatest enemy of the arts during that time period. I'm gonna have to look that up. In a so bit. as like so when you're following her in the taxi you see her pass, or the taxi pass, what like was this, this guy's little. Name? I'm looking this up. His right name was Oscar Kokoschka. Right? Okay, was it's that, hard. Was that it... Oscar with a K or a C? With a K, and Kokoschka with two Ks. K O K O. So, like, you see some of the lights coming off this particular building, but in the background, there's a little poster that says his name, Oscar Kokoschka. So that's where that scene comes from. But he's using these because it's a part of Munich's history with Nazi Germany, right? So as you're going along the drive, and this is one of the scenes you talked about, was in the forest scene, right? That was done in the Black Forest in Germany. That's in route to the Tanz Academy, which we mentioned was named Escherstrasse. But the building that it was taking place at, the actual Tanz Academy, there was a facade of the Whalen House that's actually in Freiburg and that house was built like in the early 1500s it was relocated to that area now here's some other things I thought was kind of neat too we talked about Pat she was the one who got stabbed in the heart and then so neck broken it was considered degenerate art simply because it was in the modernist tradition Basically, everything modernist was considered degenerate. That's what I'm saying. It's like, that's a far stretch to call any of that shit degenerate. Yeah, I'm looking at this and nothing about this looks degenerate to me. No, I mean, it's just the style. I mean, yeah. Yeah, like it's, I said, it's literally modernism. just the style. 
It's ridiculous. But yeah. So Sonia, the girl who Pat goes to the night that she gets murdered, her apartment is located at Burgestrasse, number four, in Munich. Now, it was torn down in 1944. It was rebuilt by a Nazi architect named Hermann Kaspar. <laughs> and it even has like a signage that talks about that. All right. Now, there's a scene with Daniel after he gets kicked out of the academy because of his dog. Apparently bit the little kid. He stops at a beer house right before he goes into the courtyard. Now, that beer house is a reconstruction of what's called the Hofbrauhaus. That was another one built in like the 1500s. It's very infamous if you're familiar with Nazi Germany. I want to just get that fucking slap dance on a loop for just hours. <laughs> that's pretty funny, Dan. All right, now here's something that's cool What the about fuck this. was up with that? That's what they did, do, it, bro. Did, it, did any of your research, any of those little I extra really features look, say anything about the they didn't really talk about slap that. dance interlude? <laughs> All right. Slap dance break. <laughs> fuck it. I mean, if they're in Munich, they're going to use it, right? No. This is kind of neat. I didn't I had no idea prior to doing this, but the Hofbrauhaus, this is where Hitler gave his first speech in 1918. It was also where the Nazi party formed, like back in 1920, in the 1920s. Hitler presented his 25-point program in the festival room, and what that was was pretty much the tenets of what the Nazi party stood for. Right? And it took place in that particular bar that they were reconstructing. Right Now, when Daniel actually goes into that square, that's a real place in Munich. Okay. It has another big ties to Nazi Germany. Now, this place is called Koenigsplatz Square, and that means King Square. It's named after like one of the kings. I can't, they had a specific name. I can't remember it right off the top of my head. But anyway... It was built in, like I said, in Munich. It has ties to a like, Greco-Roman kind of design, of course. I think some of it's after the Parthenon and some other places, right? Anyway, so those two buildings right near it were constructed by a, a Nazi. His name is Paul Trust. They still exist. One of them is called the Fjordbrau, and one is the administration building. This is where they would have book burnings, oh. and that's square. So... At one time, I have in 1933, around 50,000 Germans gathered in the square to watch book burnings. So there's some other places like when Susie and Sarah are swimming in that indoor swimming pool. That was in homage to a place. It was called the Mullesach Volksbad. And during that time when Hitler was living in Munich, he lived in a flat that didn't have a bathroom. So he would visit that place because they have baths. So he was notorious for visiting that particular spot. That's why they use that oh, place. Okay. Yeah, there's another place. So there's <laughs> several places. <laughs> they were at Hitler's shit spot. <laughs> Basically, his shit, piss, and bath spot, and his daily swim, probably. Now, the scene with Udo and that other German actor. Right. It was shot at the BMW headquarters in Munich. All right, now, what does that have to do with Nazi Germany? Because it looks very modern, right? Well, not necessarily the building, but BMW, they help with the manufacturing, supplying things like motorcycles and cars. They even help with aircraft engines during World War II. But the, what they did was, this is fucked up, is they used slave labor from nearby concentration camps. Some of them were in Dachau. One specifically is called, like, Alak. But they would use, you know, Jews and mm -hmm. whoever else they could get. During that time, now, of course, they've like, we're sorry. They, it's like, all right, whatever. But we're they, sorry. But yeah, it's like, man, that's pretty fucked up. But knowing that they used certain aspects of that, and if you pay attention a little bit to... Certain aspects of that, it sounds like all the aspects of that. Well, yeah, I mean, if you don't know any better is what I'm getting at. If you don't know those landmarks, if you don't know anything about German history or whatever, 
is a lot of those scenes wouldn't make sense. It was just like, all right, these are, you know, whatever. But knowing the close ties that Nazis, Hitler and all of them had to the occult and the reason why they chose this place specifically because of the occult witchcraft, knowing that De Quincey and the people who started, it was like this theosophy. They started their own commune in that triangle, heavily <coughs> led in, in witchcraft. Just knowing the locations, like I said, the reason why they used all these places, the ties that they have back into Nazi Germany, how that was put into this film subtly with the use of probably Miss Tanner. She seemed very mm-hmm. authoritarian given the time period as well. So it's just kind of interesting that they use all these different elements. In this film, it has this fever dream feel to it, a fairy tale feel to it, driven by the score, not necessarily the dialogue. Like Most Argento films aren't really built too much on Expo. Mm-hmm. It's like it's more atmospheric. It's more the visual aspects of it and the sound, of course. I mean, it's The just... visual aspect, I mean, I get it, especially how pretty this yeah. movie is and the insane use of color. I just, I brought it up a couple times already, and I have to just, one more time, the orange blood kind of fucking bugged me. Yeah, it's understandable. It's not because completely orange. I'm, I'm overstating that a little it's bit. It's just but. the way that that Technicolor makes that red pop. It does look a little orange tinted. It, mm-hmm. I mean, you can definitely it tell it's makeup. And light and... Yeah. I think it was stylized that way to dampen, like I said, some of the gore that you're getting. And it was cool. Like, horror, it made yeah. for some cool visuals a couple times, but other times I was just like, eh. Yeah, if you expect it to be, like I said, what we expect of gore, you're going to be let down, mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. But from an artistic standpoint, it's like, yeah, yeah you can let it slide. Yeah, from an artistic standpoint, yeah, of course. It, was, it was on point. It made for some awesome visuals. But you're right. I mean, it's just like, eh. Yeah, I get it. From an actual <laughs> gore standpoint, it kind of lessened the effect. It, it certainly does. Maybe one other thing I want to point out, too. This is kind of neat in learning this, is that not only was this like one of the first and last films in Italy to use the Technicolor aspect because of these color schemes, is that it was also one of the first films in Italy, if I'm not mistaken, to use Steadicam. Oh. Now, what I was looking at the Steadicam, I was just kind of curious, right? Now, I found that it was developed by this guy named Garrett Brown. He's a cinematographer, and of course, he's an inventor. But during the time period leading up to like 75, at least, or 76, most of it was just handheld and or dollies. You know, so you could only get certain aspects, especially if you're trying to follow characters without it feeling like someone's actually filming the shit. You mm-hmm. want fluid motion. So he was developing harnesses, and I was looking at like this program on YouTube. That was really cool. So he talked about how he designed it, and it makes use of like counterbalances. They use a gimbal, which you can make a camera balance on its axis using like mm-hmm. counterweights or whatnot. So you get a steady motion, whether you're moving up or down or back and forth, what have you. So you get like natural movements. So the guy who developed that, Garrett Brown, he was the person who was actually the cinematographer when you see Danny Lloyd in The Shining being chased in the maze because of his technology. So Stanley Kubrick was impressed because of like one of his early demos he did for it. The infamous scene of Rocky, Sylvester Stallone going up the steps in Philadelphia was shot by that guy. If you watch football, which we do, yep. the Skycam right. was developed by him. If you like watching swimming in the Olympics, maybe, or diving, the use of underwater cameras was developed by him. Oh, so, yeah. So if you're watching people either race or doing diving in water, you've seen his camera work. <laughs> if you've seen such films, like I've mentioned, The Shining, Rocky, I think I saw something like American History X, just some really cool films, this film. 
It was developed by this guy. And he said the reason why is because he just didn't like the way that you were restricted by those means at the time. He felt mm -hmm. like there was a better way where you could get fluid motion without it feeling stilted. He said his initial run was like, this shit was like 60 pounds. It was fucking heavy. And then he found a way to like, you know, use counterbalance all throughout where it wasn't right. as pressing and you still get some really dope shots. Right. You know, so yeah. Nice. Oh, yeah. Developed by him. One of the first films to use it. I thought that was really cool. So there's some really cool technological feats in this film. Yeah. That's just a fucking dope movie. Dope well, I'm movie. glad you finally got to watch it, man. Bonus mini-sode. <laughs> yeah, this is kind of like a first, too, isn't it? Yeah, no shit. I didn't know what we were going to say or how long we are going to say it for, but yeah. I wanted to give people warning. We're about to talk about fucking Mandy because yeah. it's dope. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, yeah, so I saw it about a week before you did. Yeah, you sure did. So I feel like the experienced elder in the room for this one. So what <laughs> did you think of Mandy, Danny? Because I fucking loved it. <laughs> All right. So before I'll give like that, I'm not going to nerd out too much, but I was super stoked like you were, right? We talked about it on the show prior to both of us watching it. Now, had it been <laughs> for it not selling out, I might have seen it before you, but I didn't, right. right? So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to wait. So I did. And yeah, you caught it before me. So my initial impression after seeing it last night with our friend Patrick is that, yes, I'm a big fan of like artsy films. It's like not to the point where you become like, that's all you watch. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate something that's visually pretty or told from a narrative that doesn't always make sense. Or The score is fucking awesome. I love the visuals in this film. It does feel like a fucking fever dream. A lot. I love Nicolas Cage in this film. <laughs> he, oh man, I love it. This is for one of our listeners. So I love the Cheddar Goblin. And if you pay attention, you'll catch it in the trailer too. <laughs> oh, the fucking like, oh, Cheddar he's got Goblin. It. Yeah, so Cheddar Goblin was awesome. There's a lot of really good things I like about this film without getting too much in depth. But yeah, I really liked it is what I'm going to get. Long story short. Fuck, I was looking forward to it anyway. So if you saw it with him, what did Patrick think? He liked it too, man. Good. I don't want to say like, like, oh, he he thought it was right. No, he like, he dug it. Good, good, because I've been fucking pestering him about it. Yeah, well, he was saying like, prior to us watching it, he ran into another friend of his who had asked him, he's like, hey, man, have you seen Mandy? And he's like, oh, yeah, I'm actually going to go see it tonight, which was yesterday. And he's like, dude, I'm going to go back and see it on Thursday. So this guy's like, he's going to go see it again. When the show was sold out at the Roxy, I kind of had a feeling that was going to happen, but I looked at it two ways. It's like, it's cool that a film like that, you know, shown at the Roxy mm -hmm. and people are actually willing to go and sell it out, want to see it that much. And the other part was like, it sucks because I want to see it. But I'm glad we both got to check it out, man, because it's just one of those films, dude. dude like I you, felt you check it out or you miss it. First, I felt like it was super ballsy. It's super For, ballsy, man. I mean, fuck it. I don't give a shit about it. I already warned people there might be spoilers. Yeah. You don't get the title card till the halfway point in the movie. Exactly. Which, if you, if you don't that. immediately understand why that's a ballsy move, you're essentially telling the audience is that in a two-hour movie, the first hour <laughs> is just the prequel. Yeah, exactly. It's just the cold open. In a way, it's kind of hilarious, you know? Yeah. Oh, I fucking... I, I lost it, dude. I laughed a little bit. I was like, holy shit, when I was watching yeah. it in my living room. Like, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> when I didn't get a title card at least ten minutes into the movie... Yeah. I didn't think I was going to get one. <laughs> yeah, you would think that, right? That was ballsy. The use of color alone, I think, in the movie is fucking ballsy. 
since we are talking about this film and because we talked about Suspiria, I can't help but notice that, what's his name, Panos? Mm-hmm. That he is influenced somewhat by Dario, or at least the use of those colors, man. Now, I did some reading on Panos. Do you want to know what his other influence on the use of color is? <sighs> I don't think you're going to guess this. Probably not. I don't even want to I, I want to hear a good guess, though. All right. Director-wise? Movie-wise. Oh, shit. Oh, you mean like film itself? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, what, okay, film, what, film? what film was another influence of his use of color? Maybe for not as film? maybe not as much for Mandy, but at least for his first movie oh. and more influences his style overall. I don't even want to guess, but I I know that his father, you know, of course, is a director and some of, of his Tombstone. shit. Yeah, and Cobra, <laughs> what Rambo's the second one? Uh, yeah, First Blood is First it? Blood Part Two. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, I know some of that, but I don't know how much that's an influence on those per se. I know 80s is totally a big influence on me. You can't help but notice it. Man, I think Lost Boys, gonna, maybe? No, I think it's going to make total sense when I hear Well, I mean, Lost Boys might be one of them, but yeah. the big name that stood out in the first one that you mentioned in the little snippet that I read, Manhunter. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Right? That that tracks. As soon as I say it, it makes sense. It totally but... makes sense, yeah. That film is kind of a unique film for that time period, too, Manhunter. It kind With the, of the use of Inagata Devita. Yeah, well, I mean, for some of the films, it doesn't really fit in the most of the films that were coming out during that time period. Yeah, and that style. Like uh, I said, we talked a little bit about Brian De Palma, some of his films, but outside of that, not too many. Now, I do have to say, for my money, I prefer the Chainsaw Duel and Texas Chainsaw Two. Yeah, yeah, I, I know what you're saying there. Yeah. But to have an art house movie, yeah. That has a chainsaw duel. Ballsy. <laughs> uh, yeah. What was funny about that is I love comedies, and I know the implied humor or the dick reference in that. Right. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of that in this film. But I thought it was funny and clever, like how it switched. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was used against the big dude. I loved how he ate his, you know, how he finally bit the dust, so to speak. Oh, my God. And... It's basically two separate movies. It, yeah, the it, whole the, the first acts are really cool. The, the first act tonally is completely different than the descent into madness that yeah. the second half is. Man, the <laughs> fucking crazy ass drug fueled oh descent gosh. into that fucking, is fucking madness. So good, man. What I was gonna say, man. The thing that really, really, I think for most people who've seen it, probably at this point. I can't speak for everybody, but the one thing that I think anybody who likes Nicolas Cage, you're expecting a Nicolas Cage moment in a film, and he delivers. It's not in a way where you can it tell... It doesn't quite take you out. There was no, it one, doesn't. There was one bit that almost took me out, and I can't quite remember <laughs> what it is, but... But there is so much in it that, like, I'm like, man, this is so good. I love it, man. His freak out in the bathroom. Like, you can understand it. It's a lot. It's hilarious. There's a porno scene in this film. Yeah. <laughs> That's like, what the fuck? Oh, I There's totally, a cocaine scene. <laughs> I totally was not expecting wow. full-on dick. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, that was pretty gnarly. In both regards, really. Like, oh, homeboy and the monster, that creature. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Straight <laughs> from fucking Seven. Yeah, dude. It's like, that, like, so the use of the chainsaws... There's some dick stuff going on in this film. <laughs> There's so much to unpack with the fucking movie, too. So much of the imagery. Yeah, some really cool shit. I'm not sure... It's totally fantasy-driven, too. Totally fantasy-driven. I'm not sure... Some of the thoughts and ideas that are suggested by some of the imagery 
I'm not sure if they're completely thought out or mm -hmm. if they're just incorporated as part of the director's overall feelings and the grief that he himself was yeah. going through. Yeah, yeah. Because both like of his, his movies parents. so far have been sort of his way of working through the deaths of his parents. Yeah. I know what you're saying. There's but some there's melancholy some, there. But there's some really interesting biblical theming. For sure, dude. I was talking to Jeff about that because he's seen it with Ashley as well. Over the and weekend. I'm not entirely sure what his point is yet. And mm. I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think uh, it just it's pushing me to want to watch the movie again, to be honest. Because Nick Cage is kind of set up as the devil. In a sense. His name is Red. Yeah. He's going against what's, at least on its face, a Christian church, even if that's not what they truly are. Right, but they consider cult. themselves that, yeah. And in the script, I did a little bit of research afterwards, because the movie fucking enthralled me. Yeah. That axe that he forges is called the Beast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's pretty dope. <laughs> so, like, if that's not screaming weird religious yeah. theming and Overtime, storytelling and parallelism like yeah. that's just begging to be you know sought through well and then even... by the end he kind of as signified through the voice cues and how his voice changes yeah he becomes one of the demons by the end it's pretty gnarly dude something too that it's kind of mentioned well i say kind of mentioned there's some dialogue that he has with his wife and they're laying down and they're talking about their favorite planets and he mentioned saturn now, if you know a little bit about occultism, and if you know about certain religions or mythologies, whatever you want to call them, was that Saturn worship was pretty big way back when, and that planet was associated with like evil and the devil specifically, devil worship and shit like that. So he mentions that, and there's allusions to Lucifer and fallen angels and all that stuff. Red. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's some heavy biblical stuff. One of the dudes' name is Jeremiah. And there's Brother John and stuff like that. So, I mean, those are biblical names. I mean, it almost seems to me like it's an alternate fall. Like this is Satan being driven through <laughs> grief. Yeah. Gets his mind open to the truth, in this case through drugs, as to what's going on <laughs> truly within the church. And that's what drives him to hell, which is basically where Nick Cage is at at the very end of the yeah. movie. Pretty deep, dude. It's a deep film. I mean, it's like I said, it's very artsy in its depiction of all that stuff. But it's done in a way, man, where it's a fun journey to go through. But that's the thing. Not only is it artsy, it's kind of grindhouse-y. Yeah. Yes, it is, man. It's almost like a drive through feature in a way, yeah. I can't fucking recommend it enough. It blew me away a lot more than I thought it was going to. In ways that I didn't think it was going yeah. to, I think. I, I think that's a, maybe... That's a little bit more accurate. I didn't expect it to be what it ended up being. I didn't think it was going to be half as artsy as it was. I kind of knew that. I already knew that. I knew his, it was going to be artsy. His first film, I haven't seen it. I know we've talked about it, but Beyond the Black Rainbow, like I knew that film was art house and uh, just one of the like a visually stunning film. I knew a little bit about it, and seeing the trailer for this one, and just like knowing who was in it, it's like, oh man! This From the trailer, I knew it was going to be out there, but I didn't think yeah. it was going to do what it did. I think the trailer was done in a, in a good way too, because it didn't oversell the film. It sold it just enough to where you don't really know mm -hmm. what's going on in the entire film. So yeah, I like that part too. But uh, it was super druggy. It kind of reminded me of being on drugs at times. There were parts of it where it's like, damn, if you were on a hero's dose or LSD or whatever, yeah, you'd be feeling it. Speaking fucking speaking about hero's dose of fucking acid, the goddamn alchemist. <laughs> oh my god. 
making fucking blotter paper acid with no with fucking bare hands. bare hands and then just Look. licking some off. Like this motherfucker. He is gone. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, he was like seeing the future and the past and everything all at once. And hearing fucking Red's thoughts. That's what I'm getting at. It's like he was answering him telepathically. Had the fucking tiger. Yeah. What was it? When she's calm, I know it's good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he's giving the fucking tiger acid. <laughs> Jesus, man. I just thought there was really clever ways of using Nicolas Cage's, his wife, that character, how she was an artist and she liked to use that fantasy element and she was reading these kind of fantasy fiction books and all that stuff. I also I feel like that ties in it. as well yeah. in a way that I haven't quite connected yet. Yeah, I haven't worked out the details, but you can feel it in this film. Like, there's several things alluded to it. Even that tiger sequence too. I mean, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's part of fantasy in a way. It's weird because although it's trippy because of the use of color in the beginning, it gets when dark. it gets weird, it suddenly just gets fucking weird. I like the shots that are done in the dark too. Like those are some really dope ass shots, especially him going like through the tunnel. Oh, when you see the, the lights popping in the woods with those creatures and fucking wow, that oh shit's God. awesome. That fucking homeboy taking the goddamn crossbow through the neck. <laughs> yeah, he just took it. It's like, oh, no, whatever. Yeah, like, what the fuck? Don't give a shit. All right. <laughs> There's two things I'll mention, and I, and okay. I don't want to go too far in depth, but one of the first things that really set the tone for me was when they're when he's going back after he's been logging and he's going back to that town he's in, you get the flyover, but the soundtrack opens with King Crimson. Yes. Love King Crimson, right? Now, oh, I knew I knew that you were gonna notice that when it it fucking started. Oh, I was like, fuck yes, I love this going already. But I had a chance, and I got to see Robert Fripp, who was one of the members of King Crimson. And if I'm not mistaken, I think the album that one of the albums he was on was called Red, the Red album. Mm. Go figure. But I got to see Robert Fripp. He didn't play in the style of King Crimson. It was more like what Brian Eno stuff is, more atmospheric music. But regardless, like that's pretty cool because I have some weird ties into that. You know what I mean? Two degrees of separation. <laughs> but anyhow, yeah, I was like, that sets the tone. And the second thing I was not anticipating was him eating the goop, like tasting oh, it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and his and face just... shit. It gets cartoonish, man, yeah. uh, in a way. In a big way. Well, I mean, literally twice. That's what I'm saying. In a big way. <laughs> I didn't anticipate that, and I didn't anticipate him taking that big fucking crank of dope out <laughs> that class. It's like, holy shit. He went there. Fuck yeah. Oh, man. If you're going to let him be crazy, let him do it. And with the vodka? Yeah, that was great, man. All that shit. It was just enough to where you were still in it. Yeah, it didn't go past that point. Fuck. Yeah, I'm... Even the dick. I'm going to be rewatching it soon. Yeah, that's a great film. I'm uh, bummed that there's currently no plans for a 4K release. Yeah. The one thing I did see is if there you're... There is a Blu-ray coming out on there like the is, 30th. There's a... I, think, I can't remember what country it's being pressed in. Maybe it's France, Germany, something like that. But they're having like this Blu-ray DVD combo with the vinyl and like oh. a booklet and shit. So it's region B for those who are you know curious. Mm-hmm. But I've seen it. It's fucking dope. It's like 60 bucks. I don't know if I want to get it right now, but maybe in the future. 
I'm trying to decide if I'm going to hold out to see if they're going to announce a 4K or not. Yeah, but I do well, want to own you, it. So eventually, I'm going to be getting, I'm going to be getting something at some point. That so it's great. But yeah, I know Mark Wong. They're going to be getting out. my money. <laughs> I was going to say Mark Wong called us out. Cheddar Goblins. We've seen it. So yeah, yeah it was awesome. Fucking Cheddar Goblins. That's like the fucking slap dance. <laughs> Oh my god. I like how he mumbles it too, like Jared Gala. <laughs> like this motherfucker. But yeah, I, I loved it, man. I thought it was a great film. Yeah, that's one that's definitely several viewings. Yeah, easy. This and Suspiria. Dude, and yeah. Kind of great watching them both in the same week, to be honest. Pretty fucking trippy. I totally agree. It's like, it's a aesthetic pleasing, it's a mind trip. <laughs> it's a good one to smoke too. So yeah, I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. That's it. We're really gone this time. Yeah. Two Cheddar Goblins up. Cheddar Goblin. Peace. (laughs)